the Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day. Powerful Graham Hancock. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm just, just fine. You've, um, you've kicked the green bitch. Yes, <laughs> yes. After a 24-year intense relationship with the... Uh, the green goddess or, or the green bitch, depending on what mood she's in. I had to stop. Um, and uh, I've come in for some, I've come in for some, for some criticism for, for, for this. And, and, and I feel it's important to say that uh, I hugely value and uh, love cannabis. I think it's a wonderful herbal ally. And I think that I don't think that I would ever have written my books of historical mystery if I had not encountered cannabis rather late in life. I, I did not smoke uh, any dope until I was 37 years old, and I'm now 62. Wow. And uh, roughly around about the age of 38, that's when I started getting into historical mysteries. <laughs> Before that, it was all... Of course, it's total stoner stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Before that, it was all current affairs, you know? Right. So, but suddenly something opened up for me, and I'm very and I'm very grateful to the herb for that. And initially, my real I, I, again, I need to emphasize this. I think the problem I eventually ended up having with cannabis, it's not the fault of cannabis; it's the fault of Graham Hancock. I think my relationship became abusive with the herb. It was not initially. Right. Initially, it was something I would do evenings and weekends. I would not try to write while I was actually stoned. I would do my day's work, and then chill out in the evening with a pipe or a joint. That was, that was how it was for me for quite a while. And I went through my first big historical mystery book, The Sign and the Seal, uh, which was published in 1992, with that pattern. In other words, that I would, be, I would be smoking only after I downed tools at the end of the evening and I was ready to chill. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked fine. But then when, <laughs> I start, when I started writing... Fingerprints of the Gods, which was the biggest book I've, I've ever done, a five million copy bestseller all around the world. When I started writing that, I thought I'll experiment. Let's see if I can be stoned and write. And I discovered that I could. I could be stoned <laughs> and write. And I liked being stoned so much that in a way, it, it, it urged me to just write all the time, you mm-hmm. know, because then I had, this, I had this incredibly good reason to be stoned all the time. <laughs> and and um, it took away all the physical boredom of sitting there in my chair in front of my computer screen. Just everything went away, and I went in, drifted into this space where I could explore ideas and manifest those ideas down, down on the page. And I literally, that's when I began what was to become ultimately an abusive relationship with cannabis, which that, that I would fire up in those days my, my joint or my, my pipe at uh, 9 or 10 in the morning, and I would – I'm a hard worker. I work 16 hours a day very often when I'm writing, so come 2 o'clock the next morning, I'd still be there smoking away. Um, and as the years went by, this became a l- permanent daily pattern for me, whether I was writing or not. I would be stoned from the moment I got up until the moment I went to bed. And most people who came by my house or talked to me on the phone, they would have had absolutely no idea because I was, I was completely in control. I didn't seem high. I could hold a rational conversation. I was, I was just fine. Um, and I just, felt, I just felt really good. Uh, and this is how it went on for many years. And later on, about in the early two, th- around about 2005, actually, I think, perhaps a little earlier, one of my kids told me that, you know, this stuff, this smoke is 
you don't need to have combustion products. Why don't you use a vaporizer? So I bought myself a volcano <laughs> and <laughs> on the internet. And, and, um, and then I heard that the British government was going to ban the use of, ban all peripherals. So I bought myself two more volcanoes. Volcanoes are quite <laughs> expensive, but that shows how dedicated I was. You had to make sure that you covered your bases. I had to make sure that I covered my bases. And, and then I would be vaporizing from 9 in the morning until 2 o'clock the next morning, wow. seven days a week. And, and increasingly strong strains. And this is one thing that I would say. If we lived in a regime, an irrational regime, where there was no attempt by the government to police our states of consciousness, we could have much more choice in the kind of cannabis we get hold of. For example, I would have liked to have cannabis with much more CBD and maybe less THC. Hmm. But the varieties I was smoking were uh, very, very THC-loaded. Uh, um, what's the difference in effect? Well, okay. I mean, the, it depends how much you buy into the research on this, but, but the a lot of good science has been done, and the, the, the suggestion is that THC can promote uh, or reveal. I don't want to. I don't want to blame the herb for anything. Mm -hmm. I, I, it can reveal certain psychotic tendencies in oneself, mm. and this is the well-known paranoia, which which uh, many people associate with with smoking cannabis. The CBD is an antipsychotic agent, so the natural herb is balanced with CBD and THC. And, and it looks after you very well. But where we go into intensive breeding of the herb, focusing on the element that makes you really high, which is the THC, then we get a, get a herb that is somewhat unbalanced as a result of the interference of, uh, of, of humanity. And, 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 but you get more bang for your buck, you know. That's a very, <laughs> that's a very strong herb. And, and I began to like a particular variety called cheese. I think it's called cheese because it smells like, you know, old socks. Or, or um, Stilton, you know, like a blue cheese. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found a, a grower who lived local to me, who who was just had amazing green fingers, and and, <laughs> and I would I would buy from him, and um, and I would sometimes have you know five or six ounces of the herb in my house because I was blazing through this stuff at a tremendous <laughs> at a tremendous rate. That's enough to you where you could get in trouble for. Well, dealing. that's so that so that's where the paranoia starts to become yeah. legitimate, you know, because actually they can not, <clears throat> they can break down your door and they can confiscate your home and take away your liberty and fuck you up forever you know they can do that and and so every time i heard a ring at the door or you know a car came up the street i would i would you know get 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 paranoid get, get paranoid and you were high so and, that and didn't that help. was high yeah <laughs> and i was high uh, did you get paranoid way. when you were high well this is one of the reasons why um look uh, what happened to me was that around about 2003 i started for reasons of research initially uh, working with ayahuasca, the, the vine of souls. This is the, the powerful psychedelic brew which has been consumed by shamanistic cultures in the Amazon for thousands and thousands of years. And it's not called the vine of souls for nothing. It's, a, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's an extraordinary portal into other realms. And, and in some ways, those realms are associated with death and perhaps what, what waits for us after death. Nobody knows the answer to that. But in ayahuasca, you have certain experiences relating to that. And right from the beginning, when I started to drink ayahuasca, I mean, this sounds nuts to anybody who hasn't done DMT or who hasn't drunk ayahuasca, but you do meet intelligent entities. And more and more around the world, people drinking ayahuasca are meeting this goddess figure. She might appear as a serpent. She might appear as a woman. She might appear as some kind of panther or jaguar, a uh, very powerful, tough love kind of lady 
who reveals to you the truth about yourself and just says, you know, you fucking deal with it because that's how you are. Right. And, and what the truth that was revealed to me from quite early on was my relationship with cannabis had got out of balance and I needed to get it back into balance. And of course, I ignored those messages completely because I was so, I was so much in, in love with my cannabis relationship. In fact, my <laughs> wife said that really it was like I had a mistress, you know, who I spent all my time with was the, was the cannabis rather, wow. than, rather than her. And uh, this went on for many, many years. Now, the paranoia aspect, okay, I'm going to bear my heart here, and, you know, I, I believe in being honest. The paranoia aspect began to affect my relationship with my beloved partner, Santa, who I just love from the bottom of my heart. And she is the, the best, the most, the most pure-hearted, generous-spirited, loving lady it's possible, possible to imagine. But I started to develop all kinds of suspicions about her, which were completely groundless. I started to imagine all sorts of stuff were going on. And then I started to act, act towards her as though those suspicions were real. And all of this was also related to my consumption of cannabis. It was not caused by my consumption of cannabis. I think this is a, a latent aspect of my own personality. It was being revealed by this over-abuse of, of, the, of the cannabis herb. Right. And, and therefore, I was making my beautiful partner's life a misery sometimes. Not every day, but sometimes. And she was patiently putting up with this, but she was suffering. And we went down to Brazil in October 2011. And if I had been told when we got on that plane and went down to Brazil that when I came back two weeks later, I would probably never smoke cannabis again, I would have laughed in the face of the person who told me that. But the encounters that I had with the spirit of ayahuasca, whatever that is, I'm willing to accept that there is no spirit of ayahuasca, that it's all something we generate out of our brains. But mm -hmm. for me, she manifests as a real, like a goddess. Right. And the encounters I had with that, and I do think she's real. That's just my personal belief system. Right. And those encounters that I had were incredibly powerful. And she took me to a place that was something like hell. And she took me to a place that was something like the judgment scene in the ancient Egyptian religion. Now, the judgment scene is a place where your heart is weighed in the scales against the feather of truth and harmony and cosmic justice. And you do not want your heart to be heavy in those scales. You want to be able to look back on your life and say, I did good. I did not add to the misery in the world. I did something worthwhile with this incredible gift of life that the universe gave me. And, I, and, and everything you've done, every second, every minute of your life is completely transparent. Every thought, every action, Everything you did from the moment you became conscious until the moment of your death is laid out before you, and there's no hiding from it. Like, we're great at creating illusions about our own behavior and persuading ourselves that we're behaving just fine. In the Judgment Hall of Osiris, which is also called the Hall of Mart, where the scene takes place, all of that stripped away, and you confront the truth. And I was put there, and I confronted the truth about myself, and I saw the way that I was behaving towards my partner, and, 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 and I was shown that, that, that this had to stop. Otherwise, otherwise, I was going to pay a huge price for it. And it, I, I had a series of terrifying, terrifying experiences, which my partner, Sansa, shared with me because we were drinking ayahuasca together. And at a certain point, entities came to her, and, and she had the experience of her heart being pulled out of her chest. And the entity said to her, and she thought she was going to die, and the entity said to her, we're going to do this to you to teach Graham a lesson. And Santa communicated that to me. And I would rank that as probably the single most terrifying night of my entire life. And I've had some terrifying nights. That was just 
absolutely scared rigid. And I, and I came out of that with uh, a feeling, a very clear feeling. In, in ayahuasca, we have sharings. The next day after you've drunk the brew, you share with the rest of the group who you've drunk with the experiences you had the night before as much as you want to share. And what I shared, because I still didn't believe that I could stop smoking cannabis, what I shared was that I was going to change my relationship with cannabis and, and, and to get to a place where cannabis was serving me again rather than me serving her. Um, and, and that's what I believed. But when I got back to England, long flight, what's the first thing I do? I get out my vaporizer, get out my stash, fire up the vaporizer, and fill a nice bag of <laughs> of uh, vapor. You say it so nostalgically. <sighs> well, I miss it. I miss it. You know, this was a, 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 a cannabis is such a, a beautiful, sensual ally if she's used right. And so, do you think it's just a, an imbalance issue with the CBD THC ratio? And well, let me was... let me just let me just finish with what sure, with what please. happened to me. So, I fill up the bag, and I'm down there in my basement. And I take the first, and I take the first draw, and I'm suddenly filled with the most intense feelings of horror and loathing. And it is exactly like I'm back in that space that ayahuasca took me to. And I try a second puff, and I can't do it. I physically could not continue. I, I, I knew that I just, I just could not continue. I expressed the vapor out of the bag. Wow. I crumpled up the bag. I put it away, and the next day I got rid of several ounces of oh, cannabis. Yeah. I know, I know, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing to do, but, but, but for me it was the right thing to do. 24 years, non-stop relationship with cannabis, definitely abusing the herb. I had got to the point where the only rational course of action was what I was shown in ayahuasca, which was to stop. And I don't know whether it was because there was way too much THC and not enough CBD or whether it was just me not being responsible for my own behavior. I, I, go, I go around you know, saying that I believe in adult responsibility, and I do, but I don't think I was being responsible. I don't think I was using the herb in a responsible way. I don't think I was using it in a respectful way, right. and I paid a price for that. Well, that's very honest and forthcoming of you to, to talk about it. And it's very uncomfortable for people to uh, to discuss mistakes they've made or mm. paths they've gone down that yeah. they didn't, for whatever reason, they got caught up in the momentum and they didn't yeah. see where it was at, headed in, until they hit the wall. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you have a legitimate like chemical reaction to it. It doesn't just sound like... Um, it doesn't just sound like an abusive no. relationship because the effect that, that it was having, the extreme mm. paranoia effect yeah. and yeah. the unease. Mm -hmm. Do you take care of your body? Do you work out? Do you do any exercise? Not enough. Not enough. I do some, I do some calisthenics. I don't, I don't do a whole lot of You should do yoga. How do you not do yoga? You should do yoga, man. Yeah. Graham Hancock, yoga has your name on it. Oddly enough, somebody's come up to me recently and, and suggested I join a, a yoga a yoga class. Listen, man, you have to join it yesterday. Okay. For real. Yeah. It's for for a guy like you because it's a way to get high without doing any mm -hmm. any drugs. Mm -hmm. I've gotten there's only one time in my whole life I did it, but I got so high after uh, a yoga session mm -hmm. that it was like I had just smoked weed. Like mm -hmm. I felt mm -hmm. exactly like mm -hmm. like I just mm -hmm. smoked a lot of weed. And I was sitting there in a hotel room and I was like, "This is incredible." Like I would swear I'm high as fuck right now. Right. right. I hadn't smoked in days. Okay. And it gives you, um, it's a reset. Mm. It gives you a reset. It gives you like a, a to me, like it gets rid of the excess and balances mm -hmm. things out. Like there, you can, you know, people, the reason why people have road rage 
and they're reacting so strongly to nothing. What, mm -hmm. a guy got in front of you and it's going to take you three extra seconds to get where you're going? And you go crazy. Like, yeah. Fuck you! And yeah. fucking, that is not him, and yeah. that is not this. The guy, yes, maybe he shouldn't have done that, but does yeah. it even bother you? Does it mean anything? Massive People make yeah. mistakes. The guy got yeah. in front of you. What's the big deal? Yeah. That's, that's It's built up. It's okay. built up, and there's imbalance. Right. There's a, it's energy imbalances in people. And yes. We all, we we're stuck in cubicles or doing jobs that we don't appreciate, and and, and people blow up. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the best way to uh, avoid that kind of stuff, to me, is yoga. Yeah. Well, but what about all the the, the stretching and the you know the joint, the, like my my knees and my hips? I've had, I had my hip replaced six weeks ago. But oh my god, you six weeks ago? Yeah, six weeks ago. You're I walking was, around like you're fine. Yeah, six weeks ago I was in hospital. I got a massive scar down the outside of my right thigh. They wow. went in there and replaced my, repla replaced my hip. But I guess one could start gently and just sort of build up. Now, you would have to talk to an expert about that because yeah. I don't know what physical limitations. Yeah. The, Apparently uh, none. none, none, none. The, 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 the surgery's gone well and um, wow. I'm, I'm all set. So yeah. they told you you could go running? I can go running. I can go swimming. I can do anything. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible, and it's like it's a serious operation. It's a serious operation. I know it's a serious operation because I opted to stay awake during it. Oh my! Well, God. I'm a writer, you know. I have to have stuff to write about. Oh, that's you know. hilarious! And, you, and, did and you so tell they, them that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and, and <laughs> so, so what they do is they give you a spinal. Um, so it's an a, epidural. It's a bit like yeah. an epidural that w w women get when they're giving uh, giving birth. Right. It's slightly different, but that's basically what it is, and that freezes the lower half of your body you use the use of your legs you're paralyzed and there's no there's no pain whatsoever but then because they regard the operation as a, a the surgery as a kind of scary procedure they then give you a massive dose of sedatives and you kind of go off into dreamland so i declined those um and they wouldn't actually let me look they put some kind of curtain device between uh. my face and my hip but i heard the sawing oh my and then Jesus. i heard the hammering oh my and i felt God. like a piece of furniture on a carpenter's bench you know it was, it oh. was i heard them talking it was interesting it was an interesting experience but then very nice to come out of it be fully awake afterwards and uh, gradually the feeling comes back to your legs and uh, i spent four days in hospital and initially i thought it was going to be very tough and I thought I'd be on sticks for a long time, but I did the physio, and I just carried on working, working at it, and I'm okay. I stayed awake for my first knee surgery. Right. And uh, while the guy was working, it was really weird because I was like half in it and half out of it. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was just a guy that was like tired of being a doctor. <laughs> or, like really wasn't into people or whatever right. it was. I mean, he fixed my knee. It still fixed his day. It's a patella tendon graft where they right. take a slice of your patella mm -hmm. and they open you up and take a piece of bone out of your shin and a right. piece of bone on your kneecap and they use that to replace your anterior cruciate ligament. Right. And um, they he puts it in there and like moves my leg around and goes, well, better than it was. That's what he said. <laughs> That's what he said. Like I was awake. <laughs> right, right. Like right. I don't know if he just forgot I was awake yeah, or thought yeah. I wouldn't remember, yeah. but I remember him moving around like, well, better than it was. <laughs> Like, like that's it? Not we we've got it done. Yeah. A beautiful job. This young man will be yeah. up and walking in no time. Just no. better than it was. That's <laughs> the limit was. of his ambition. It, it yeah. His attitude was just like so. He didn't give a fuck. <laughs> and I remember I'm visiting him to get it looked at. Like yeah. after you know he would like want a, a checkup to see yeah. how it was. Like months later, 
God, like the guy just didn't like people. You mm-hmm. could tell. Mm-hmm. He had this thing. It was just done. Just right. done. There was no bedside manner. He was, yeah. just, he was courteous. He wasn't yelling at you or anything, yeah. but it was just... You were just another piece of meat on the table. Yeah. 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 It's, it's weird to watch, though, isn't it? Your body getting operated on? It's a very strange experience to undergo. Yeah. Um, in, in my sense, uh, in, in my case, as I say, I was not able to watch it because they put up a curtain, but I heard it. And, uh, and, and the, the particular things that I heard were sawing and hammering. I saw it on a screen. Right, I didn't. I, could, I didn't watch it. I couldn't watch yeah. it in front of me, but I saw what was happening on right. the screen. Right. It was crazy. It was really weird. They they opened you up like a fish, and yeah. but the hip replacement is a gigantic one. That's it's a, a big. It's a big surgery. How is it six weeks later and you're walking around like you're great? Well, you didn't I have a limp at all. No, I guess I, I guess in some ways I, I I must have been reasonably fit and and got on. You know, that's good. Got got back. That's got, got very back important. Up. Yeah, because I know for folks that are like overweight or you know have issues already, yeah. they allow a hip injury to let them get overweight. Yeah, that's a big recon. You know, rehabilitation. It's a it's a big it's a big thing, and it is, and it is major surgery. But it's I, they but chop the end of your bone off, right? Yeah. So so we made in a way our bodies are like machines, and we got this ball and socket joint in the hip, and and so the ball is on the end of the long bone, the, the femur, I think it is. And they, so they chop that off. <laughs> that comes off. Okay. And then the socket, in my case, there were cysts in the socket, which were hollow oh. spaces that had come in there because of the, the, the ball joint was out, of, was out of kilter and it was rubbing in the wrong way. And this is why it was, co- it was co- I was in severe pain for a year before this happened. Wow. And, um, and so they put in a, what they do is they put in a titanium unit there where the socket is. And they put a titanium shaft that goes that they hammer down into the bone. Oh. But then, but then on the top of the titanium is ceramic. So the actual bearings, both the, the the titanium socket is lined with ceramic, and the bearing that moves around in it that sits on top of the titanium shaft that's also ceramic. So there's no metal rubbing against metal, mm-hmm. which has caused problems in the past. People get fragments of metal into their bloodstream and so on. Ceramic on ceramic bearings, um, and uh, and it's very good. You know, it works well, and I'm not in pain, and 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 uh, that very bad bad period of not being able to walk more than a quarter of a mile without having to sit down and and recover, that's all gone. And it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, how long is it going to be before we have bionic bodies? Well, it's already happening. We yeah. are already getting bionic bionic I mean, bodies, and and this uh, and this is one of the good things which medical medical science has done some terrible things, but one of the good things it's done is is I mean, if this if this had happened 50 years ago, I would have been crippled at the age of 62. I couldn't have gone on my life that's know. what eventually did in hunter thompson right he was in constant pain 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 yeah i believe he had hip replacement too but it was like right. old school you yeah. know they didn't really yeah they've do, got a lot better a lot better yeah, yeah. that's the image right there yeah. that we're, we're looking at up on that screen there we go yeah. oh Short god yeah. graham yeah. hancock yeah. That's what jesus louises yeah it's crazy yeah. The idea that you're going to run around on that—that's a fake, yeah, fake yeah. joint. And you know, I asked him when you hammer that titanium shaft down inside the bone, mm. is there any danger that you can split the bone? And he said, "Yeah, sure. We sometimes split the bone." But oh. he said, "Then we just, then we just bind it with wire." Oh my God! <laughs> you just what? You fucking tied up with duct tape? <laughs> yes, basically. That's so crazy. <laughs> they hammer a piece of metal into the the center where the marrow is. Where the marrow is, yeah. Motherfucker. Yeah. Does nice. it danger endanger the leg? Does it? Uh, Apparently not. Wow, that's good. incredible. It's, it's good. It's good stuff. And then the body just absorbs the titanium, or comes part of the body. Bone tissue forms around as well, and, and you're all set. And mates to it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. 
That's incredible. So I'm 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 you know pleasantly surprised by the way that this has has turned out. I thought I like I'm here in America now. I I thought I would have to take sticks with me on this trip, but I wow, haven't, I haven't had to do so. So you planned on taking sticks? I did. But, wow. But in the end, I decided not to. It's incredible. You're just walking around, totally yeah. normal. I don't want to. I have neat screws in both knees. I don't right. know why I'm so surprised, right. but I just I, for whatever reason, a hip replacement seems like incredible. Yeah, it's kind of intimate as well, you know. It's right in the center mm-hmm. of your being there. It's kind of... It's right next to your junk. That's what right you're saying. Right next to your junk, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's incredibly intimate. It feels, you know, that's what it is. There's a vulnerability. It's yeah. It's inches away from your penis, and they're yeah. sawing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, Jesus. Plus, I mean, so, well, since we're in the business of revelations here, <laughs> they have to... The, the other thing that they have to do when you, when you have the surgery for the 24 hours after the surgery is you have to have a catheter, uh-huh. you know, through the penis and into right. the bladder because for those first 24 hours you cannot get up out of bed and you can't lift up to use a bedpan so, right. so they, they stick in a catheter and, wow and I felt I felt I wanted that out as soon as possible <laughs> I wanted it out as soon as possible I wanted to return to autonomy over my body yeah. as quickly as possible I did not want it to be subject to the whims or fancies of others I want and I made a big fuss about this I wanted the catheter out the next morning and and they said and, and I, I I literally was up on a Zimmer frame the, the by midday the next day and hobbling hobbling to the uh, to the toilet wow <laughs> So how many days was it before you could walk? So I was walking the very next day on a, what? On a Zimmer frame. Yeah, yeah. And they tell you to do this? Yeah, you have to get going. You can't, oh. you can't uh, just sit there and, and do nothing. You've got to get going. So I walked on a Zimmer frame. Then I walked on two, two sticks and then, I, then one stick. And, uh, how long to one stick? Oh, I only got rid of the one stick about 10 days ago. Okay, so it was uh, how long in before you could do one stick? Um, let's say uh, four and a half weeks. Four and a half weeks you're just walking around with a cane. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Worth it. Worth it. I'm, yeah. I'm very happy to. I'm very happy that I had it done and that I don't have to suffer the pain because I had severe osteoarthritis. I don't know why. <clears throat> I mean, we all think we're young, you know, but I'm. I feel. I feel young. As I'm, I'm 62. And and I, I I don't know why I was afflicted with this at at an age. M- most people who go for hip replacement they're into the, into their seventies, you know. So mm-hmm. I don't know why it hit me so hard. <clears throat> I like the line from Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where where Indiana Jones is um, all beat up, sitting in the ship's ship's cabin and in some cabin, and the lady with him comments on his appearance, you know, and he says, "It's not the years, it's the mileage." <laughs> <laughs> and I think yeah. I put on some mileage. Uh, over the years. Well, I know a lot of martial artists that get hip replacements. Yes. Mark Coleman, the former UFC heavyweight champion, just uh, tweeted that he's going in for a hip replacement. He, actually, he's already done it. And okay. I believe Chuck Norris has had hip replacements. Right. It's very All common. The impacts and yeah. Yeah. And I have a, a, a buddy, my friend Shuki, who's a Muay Thai instructor. I believe he was in line for a hip replacement the last time I saw him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, um, it's a weird joint. Sometimes yeah, it's a weird, it, a weird joint. But the good news is it's it's doable mm-hmm. and and after a few weeks of pain and discomfort you're back on your feet and, and fully functional unless the surgeon screws up which they do sometimes i wonder about guys like um uh bo jackson he was a, a football player that was mm-hmm. injured really really badly and he had to get a hip replacement and it ba- basically ended his career right uh he was playing football and baseball at the same mm-hmm. time he was, like, mm-hmm. he was a super athlete yeah. like incredible athlete but if they could have fixed him with this back then, mm-hmm. it seems like he could have continued playing Probably football. Probably could have carried on. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Yeah. Football with an artificial hip. 
But why why should I be shocked? You know, I mean, we have metal tubes that fly to other countries. Why should I be yeah. shocked that yeah. they can fix your yeah. your hip? Yeah, yeah. And and what that comes down to is they can, where your quality of life has deteriorated because of pain and immobility, you can recapture that. You yeah. can get your quality of life back, and that's what uh, what I value about it. That's another place where cannabis is a beautiful drug. When you're injured, <coughs> you know, to just give you a sense of ease of your body. Yeah, it's uh, it's for people that are in pain. You know, people have back problems. Cannabis is a wonderful, it's incredible sort of thing. I have Relaxes to say, things. I have to say that I did wonder, and I still do wonder, um, whether the fact that I quit cannabis in October 2011 and started feeling severe hip pain just three months later in the early part of 2012, whether there's some connection or whether the cannabis was either in some way um, protecting me from the onset of severe osteoarthritis or whether at least it was reducing my sensitivity to the pain of mm. the osteoarthritis because that's when I started noticing it. So your body was just out of alignment? The hip was out of socket or something? It was wearing in a funny way? Yeah, it was, wear, was, it it was wearing in a funny way. It seemed that the, 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 that ball socket joint was not was not quite the right shape. And, you know, oh, it's just a natural? Some kind of, some kind of natural thing. When you talked about the ayahuasca experience and you talked about the, 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 the goddess coming to you and that you choose to believe that it's real, mm. um, my, my thoughts on this whole what is real and what is not real thing, what I've been thinking lately is that it doesn't really even matter Yeah, because what it is is it's about the experience itself. And the the best parts of psychedelic experiences are the learning parts. It sounds like so boring to people yeah. because they think like, oh, no, I thought I was going to see amazing things yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was going to watch elephants fly and it was going to be, yeah. you know, mad hallucinations, which, yeah, does occur sometimes. Sure. But that's that's not what it's really about. What it's really about is about a, a learning experience. It's I about massive leaps in development of your yeah. personality and your psyche, your worldview, your personal view. And these these massive leaps that happen through psychedelics, they happen exactly the same way if you really do encounter a goddess mm -hmm. or if this goddess is just yeah. conjured up by your imagination yeah. in, in incredibly vivid detail. Either one is the same experience the same to experience. you Absolutely. personally. Yeah. I think that's so a very important point. It's a very important point yeah. because, yes, it might be a hallucination, but it is immensely beneficial. Immensely beneficial. Or it might not be a hallucination, and we might not have a full account of what the fuck goes on in the human consciousness, yeah. especially during altered states. Absolutely. And to, it, to go one way or the other, I think, is absurd. Mm -hmm. We don't just, need to do that. We don't we need can to. Just we say don't that know. Here, here is an incredibly valuable experience. Yes, uh, which yes. is which is available to us, and which uh, let's not forget that humanity has had a long relationship with these plants. Uh, this is this is one of the, I think one of the problems, again caused by the war on drugs, mm -hmm. which is that it sought to intervene in that relationship and demonize and and make it uh, dangerous. To, to use them because you might get sent to prison. You can get sent to prison for a, for a very long time. People live in fear. What we need is a, is a nurturing society which makes it possible for people to have these experiences in the safest, most loving environment. The mm. love, is, love is key. If you're feeling threatened in your head at a particular time, if you're in a, if you're in a space that, that is, is uncomfortable or difficult for you, chances are the psychedelic experience will also be uncomfortable and difficult. 
um, the more that you can control the space, the more that uh, you can be surrounded by others who love you and have your best interests at heart, the more likely you are to have a very beneficial experience from that. And th that, th those beneficial experiences can and frequently do include painful moments when you come to realization of, of actually who you are and what, and what you are. And, and th this is, I mean, it's absolutely fundamental with ayahuasca is what I call the life review, uh, where you, you see the impact of your behavior on others, which previously you had insulated yourself from. And when you see the pain you'd caused, you might have felt perfectly justified at the time. When you see it, and you see it with that clarity, it makes you strongly motivated not to do that again. Yeah. So it's a very important learning experience. They that, call them plant teachers. They call them teachers in the Amazon. That aspect, that, that learning from your past mistake aspects exists in a lot of psychedelics. It's yes. a core factor. Of I would say it's a core factor of, of all psychedelics. And I've always felt, I always felt like it's really ironic that law enforcement works against psychedelics because nothing would benefit law enforcement more than psychedelics. Absolutely. If psychedelics were legal, there'd be so many less crimes. So many less crimes. So many, first of all, the drug crimes be out the door, yeah. and then it would be a matter of how many people are on mushrooms are going to rob your house. How about zero? Exactly. You know? Yeah, I mean, exactly. they would ask you for food if they yeah. were that starving. Yeah. yeah. I just think that we have this incredible ally uh, that our, our culture, our society, we have this amazing uh, plant thing that we yeah. discovered in several different forms yeah. and we've made all of them outside of, yeah. of our reach we, we put all of them outside le legal reach which is insane it's insane yeah, it makes you wonder what's going on I mean, well, why why why, they, why is society on this self-destructive trip right now they're ignorant they're, it's essentially with this is i believe and this is it sounds crazy but i believe this mm. i believe that psychedelics are here for human beings to take to move to the next level of yeah. consciousness, and they yeah. can elevate us away from our warlike ways. I'm with you on I that. I think it's the only thing. Mm -hmm. The only thing. I don't think ideology, morality shifts with understanding, with the exchange of information. I think morality escalates slowly but surely mm -hmm. all throughout culture, and eventually, may we may get to a term or a time in the future where we're not warlike at all. Yeah. But the best way to do that is through psychedelics. Psychedelics can help. And yeah. The the people who are involved in the running of things most likely are ignorant to the experience. Mm. And so what you're dealing with is someone who is 50, 60 years into a lifelong closed-off mm. ego trip yeah. of death and destruction, yeah. and they're the ones that are running the world. Unfortunately, they're yeah. the ones that are running the world. That's, that's why we're so fucked. We're not so fucked because humans are evil. And no. when you look around at all the nice people that you meet, you get really confused as to how the world can be so fucked how up. How can it be so fucked up? Because they... When people are basically good. Yeah, most people are good. But the people that are running shit, most of them are not good. And uh, Yeah, and, and, and they get like into personality types. Like, I mean, if you yeah. want to run shit... Then mm -hmm. right there, you've got a certain kind of personality. Yeah, the per per anybody that wants to be president should not be allowed to be president. Exactly, that's it really should be an instant disqualification. <laughs> yes. You know, you should you should be absolutely yeah. not wanting that job. It should be like the lottery, you know, yeah. like you should it, it, like the public, like a new president comes in every month, yeah. you know, yeah. and if you do yeah. a good job, you know, you get to keep the, people get to vote whether yeah. they keep you for a few months. Yeah. 
And yeah. it's just a person. Yeah. Just a, a you, you have random qualifications as far as education, Absolutely. as far as your background. Not some power hungry yeah. egomaniac who wants to push you around, which is which is unfortunately the case. And the old boy network, the thing that comes into place when these guys the they're, they're cronies and they all help each other out and hook each other up and yeah. communicate with each other and then yeah. there's lobbyists and yeah. special interest groups. Yeah. And they all want to make sure that this keeps going so they make sure that the yeah. laws continue to stay yeah. on the books, that yeah. allow them to do all the stupidity, especially when like Congress can't be guilty of insider trading. Right. Have you seen that? I didn't see that. No. Oh, I, let me Google that because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm correct. Congress not guilty of insider <laughs> trading. I, I think you can't accuse them of insider trading. Oh, dear. Yeah, oh, dear is the right way to say that. Let me, <laughs> let me Google that to make sure that that's true. Congress. So basically they get immunity? Yeah. Uh, hold on. I'm, I wrote it the wrong. Can't be, maybe can't be guilty. Immune to insider trading? Hmm, let's try immune. Yeah, there's something. I'm looking at some articles on this here. Well, politicians are always cutting themselves all the slack there is, you know. That, okay, that is exactly what it is. Congress believes they are, they're immune to insider trading laws, <laughs> and uh, there's our, there are legal professors that are debating them. Mm. Um, and uh, the legal analysis by law professor Donna Nagley of the Indiana University suggests that members of Congress may not be immune to insider trading laws after all. Apparently there was a 60 Minutes piece where mm -hmm. they went on about this. So it's one of those legal things yeah. where apparently there's probably you have to go over it with a fine-tooth comb and then yeah. find out what, what exactly the stat, you know, how it's written. It's all craziness. A bunch of corrupt bastards. Crazy I mean, they're, they're, fucks. You know, that's it. That's it. They wanted to. They wanted. They wanted to do that job because they like controlling other people. But just they, the fact that they could say that they don't want to be prosecuted for insider trading. Mm -hmm. It's like, why is that? How much are you doing? How much insider? Guess what? You can come to me all day and and you say, hey Joe, do you think that insider trading should be illegal? And I'll say yes. Yeah. And if I do insider trading, prosecute me. Yeah. But if I'm coming out saying. I don't want you to prosecute me for insider trading. You definitely got something to hide. Yeah, yeah you got to be yeah. like, what the fuck are you doing, man? <laughs> yeah. you, that's why you want to be a congressman, so you can just Most profit off of the stock market, you creep? So I thought, and I've made this proposal several, several times, that, um, that what, you know, what I would like to see is anybody running for high office, they first start right off, they've got to do 10 ayahuasca sessions. It's a great idea. You know, that's it. That's that's the first, that's the first hurdle. They've got to do that. They've got to go through it, and we'll see how they feel afterwards. Um, could be ten, you know, strong mushroom sessions that would be just as good, but uh, you know they gotta they gotta be able to do that. You know what's really crazy? The solution exists to a better world. It exists. It exists right here. It's not like we well imagine if some benevolent race from another planet came down here and b gifted us with some space fruit. And yeah. if we eat the space fruit, we'll see ourselves for who we truly are right and we'll recognize in that concept, our potential. Which many people hold, they're letting go of their responsibility for their own lives. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But, but if you told people that, that you would go, wow, that would be great, but it's science fiction. Yeah. Well, the exact thing yeah. exists yeah. with ayahuasca, That's with true. psychedelic That's true. mushrooms. That's true. It exists. Yeah. And for whatever reason, you know, discussing it is a very controversial thing. Very controversial. It's very controversial. Like I've, I've like had producers like ask me like, "Why are you talking about like TV shows that I'm working on? Why are you talking about illegal drugs?" I'm like I've been asked, I've been asked to stay away from those subjects. Of course, you don't talk. You're gonna fuck yeah. up this whole thing. Yeah. This ancient archaeology. I think you're onto something, Graham. I think you've done some good work. 
But read the mushroom yeah. down, buddy. Exactly. Come on. I've had that. Graham. I've had that conversation. Come on, Graham. <laughs> you don't need the mushrooms. We're making some money over here, Graham. Yeah. 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 It's it's it exists. And, and I think that was part of the problem with my TED talk too. Yeah. We could live in a Narnia world. We could live in a world like Avatar. If everybody was doing ayahuasca, we could pull this world together with a rapid quickness. Yeah. If they just broke out ayahuasca ceremonies all over the globe, mm. if it became the next big thing, yeah. sort of like cell phones. Yeah. Everybody's got ayahuasca ceremonies on every corner. Yeah. We, you could change the whole world within our lifetime in an astounding, loving way where that. people would abandon so many of their ideas about business and so many of their ideas about uh, uh, controlling resources and killing people. And You know, the amazing thing is that it is actually happening. Um, it is actually happening, admittedly on a small scale. But for me, this is one of the mysteries of, of ayahuasca at a time when the Amazon jungle is under such terrible threat mm. that out of the jungle emerge these two plants, one of which is a vine, you know, which then begins to spread her tentacles all, all around the planet and to call out to people. And people are drawn to ayahuasca. I can't tell you how often I get asked, uh, where do I go for a, for, for a good ayahuasca ceremony where I know yeah. I can trust the shaman. It, again and again, it's, it's happening everywhere. It's happening in Japan. It's happening in America. It's happening in Germany. It's happening, it's happening all over the world. And so you get a, a, a small but growing group of, of, of initiates who have had this shared experience. And uh, you know, we kind of know each other when we meet. And the initiates that have had this experience are talking about it, and more are coming. Exactly. It's building and building. And the ayahuasca tourism in South America is gigantic yeah. now. So it's, it's really – It's gigantic. And I, I, again, I, a number of times I stand up at the, and I'm giving a, a, a presentation somewhere, and I'm talking about ayahuasca. And then somebody stands up in the audience and says, don't you realize that by promoting ayahuasca, you're leading to the depletion of the rainforest? Quite the opposite is the, tr is the case. Uh, the, what's happened with ayahuasca is that ayahuasca is being massively planted in the rainforest now because of ayahuasca tourism. Ayahuasca tourism is a really good thing for ayahuasca. <laughs> it's not causing any depletion, and, and uh, ayahuasca can be grown uh, in many different parts of the world, and it is, and it is being, being grown. That's the, the vine. It's a, it's, in a, it's a really it's a fascinating subject. The fact that something does exist to give you that experience. Yeah. I've always said about the the DMT experience that like if you if you could just show someone like what you see if you without taking it if you could just show someone yeah. they would want to do it. They would want to go. Wait a minute, mm. and it doesn't hurt you. Like, mm. No, it doesn't. Mm. Hurt you. You're not going to get hurt. Mm. But most people most people probably shouldn't do it though. That's what I think. Also, well, I think and I think even you need if baby we steps. Yeah. If we lived in that ideal world where we as adults had the right to make sovereign decisions about our own consciousness, I think most people wouldn't choose to do it. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, yeah. if you look at how it is in Holland, yeah. where marijuana is essentially legal and yeah. nobody, you know, they like they look down upon people that get high all the time. Yeah. And they also look down upon hard drugs yeah. because of the fact that you can get most things. They yeah. understand with great clarity yeah. what's dangerous and what's not dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And people are always going to make bad mistakes. That's it. You know, you just have to treat people as adults. And, the, yeah. And, and you have to understand that some people will make mistakes. And there will be problems, but that is that that should not be an obstacle to what what has to be a fundamental freedom. But what about allowing people into your community that sell them, allowing people in your community of, of friends and neighbors that profit off of the addiction of others? Because there's certain drugs like meth. I agree. Like I'm not saying that meth should be illegal. Like mm -hmm. I don't I don't know whether or not 
I don't know whether or not there's a way to handle it where you get the maximum benefit. I don't know whether it's making it illegal, decriminalizing it, making it so that people can't get prosecuted for using, but they can get prosecuted for selling. Complicated area. Yeah. Some of these some of these substances are very harmful. Personally, I don't want to smoke meth. But if you were next door to a meth guy, yeah. like you'd not want that guy in your community. He's profiting off of no. enslaving people, yeah. chemically yeah. enslaving yeah. people. Yeah. So this is a, this is an area where more work has to be done. But I think that I think if we approach the problem from a spirit of love and from a spirit of respect for the sovereignty of other adults, it'll be a whole lot better than the way we're approaching the problem right now. And as we know, making these toxic substances uh, illegal doesn't prevent their use. It, yes. does, it absolutely does not prevent their use. The use has gone up and up and up and up and up over over the decades. And it's kind of unique. The the, the one of the um, properties of psychedelics whether it's uh like some for some works some folks um ibogaine mm -hmm. has a, a great re result for uh curing addictions and ayahuasca has ayahuasca a great too, yeah. result and the people that are doing these very things and selling these very drugs both mm -hmm. participating in both sides selling and dealing mm -hmm. could both benefit from ayahuasca sure. Sure. Like if you're if you're a meth dealer, you're an asshole. Yeah. Like what an asshole! You're yeah. you're selling something that fucking kills people. Yeah. yeah. Makes them pull their skin off of their yeah. face. Yeah. What are you doing? One of the first um, ayahuasca sessions that I went to in Brazil, there was a, a guy there from L.A. who who was a heavy smoker of of crystal meth. Oh and, Jesus! And he um, came there in a state he was just so wired. And he, uh, it came out as we were discussing, as we were talking, it came out that he had been, he had a rival in love, and he'd gone out and got a gun, and he, and just before he left L.A., the best decision he ever made was to leave L.A. and come down to Brazil and drink ayahuasca. He was getting close to the point of murdering a fellow human being. Wow. Um, two weeks in Brazil, five ayahuasca sessions, completely turned him around. Completely turned him around, and and he revolutionized his life. Incredible. And he became such a loving, positive, warm-spirited person, and all his anger was gone, and and he moved on in his life in in amazing ways. And I've seen many, 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 many examples of that. I don't want to pretend, however, that it's all sweetness and light in the garden. Um, there there are problems also with with ayahuasca, and people should be aware of this. There are shamans who are abusing their power. Uh, there are, um, you know, if you go to a place like Iquitos in P Peru, you'll find there's two types of shamans. One type are the curanderos, they're the healers. The other type are the brujos, they're sor sorcerers, actually. And um, they will use ayahuasca to gain power uh, over others. And there have been one or two horrendous cases that occur with this. So I do think the the intention of the individuals who are involved is also uh, an, an important part of this. And psychedelics, I agree with you that the, 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 the single one-stop shop to transform our society and make it a better place, a far better place than it can be today, is the correct use of psychedelics. But uh, I would be wrong to say that psychedelics are a magic potion mm. because they're not. And there have been societies which have misused psychedelics profoundly. I would say that the Aztecs in Mexico were one of those. What did they do? Well, they used psilocybin, but they did not use it for uh, gentle consciousness exploration. The Aztecs used psilocybin preparatory to rituals of human sacrifice. 
the Aztecs, uh, the Aztecs used psilocybin as a vehicle to communicate with their deities, and those deities included characters like uh, Huitzilopochtli, who was the war god, uh, who spoke to Mo Montezuma was the last Aztec emperor, and uh, that's 1519. Uh, when Cortez appears in Mexico. And Montezuma was in daily communication with, with the war god by means of psilocybin mushrooms. And, and what the war god was telling him to do, you know, there's demons out there as well as angels. What the war god was telling him to do was to kill people and to stretch them over a stone and cut out their hearts. And there, were, there was a, a horrendous situation in Tenochtitlan, which was the capital city, which is now Mexico City, as a matter of fact, when they inaugurated the Great Pyramid, reliable accounts, 80,000 people were sacrificed to the god of war. In four days. In four days. 80,000 people. Now, this is, a, this is a bloody awful thing that was going on there, and psychedelics were involved. I'm not saying that psychedelics caused it. And again, we come to this issue. Is it, are these entities that we encounter projections of our own minds? Or are there, is there some other realm or level of existence where non-physical entities that communicate with us at the level of consciousness exist? Uh, whichever it is, whether it's a projection of our own minds, as you rightly say, or whether those entities are real, is less important than the effects on our behavior. But if what is being projected from our own mind is very dark and negative and wicked, or if those entities also include evil angels as well as good guys, then you can get cultures misled uh, down this path. And I do believe that's what happened with the, with the Aztecs. That, yeah. There's also recently, and again, I think truth is really important. Truth is really important. So let's be truthful about this also. There have been some tragic cases with, uh, with ayahuasca, most recently in Chile, uh, which, in, which actually involved a human sacrifice, which actually involved the, the, the burning to death of a, of a baby on the instructions of the so-called guru or shaman, who he'd formed a kind of death cult, but the, their sacrament was ayahuasca. Um, this is very rare, but it does happen, and I think people should be aware when they enter ayahuasca space that one of the things ayahuasca does is it makes you more suggestible. It opens your heart. It makes you, it makes, if, if, if a powerful, strong, negative personality comes along and says to you, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, you might just do it. And that's, that is also there possible. So you have, wow. to, you have to be strong in yourself. You have to be clear on your intent. And, 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 and if you're not going into this with good intent, then bad things also can happen. Well, I, I was also wonder what would it be like to introduce psychedelics into the insane warlike environment of Aztec Mexico in the 1500s. I mean, what, what would it have been like, this living back then, and what, what did, would it take to become uh, a, per a person of royalty, an emperor, a king. In, in those days, it was, it was insane bloodshed. Insa was, insane bloodshed. There's they, war were, they were a very dark and demonic culture, and unfortunately, that demonic aspect of, of Aztec culture was, without any shadow of a doubt, mediated by psilocybin mushrooms, and they called them teonanactyl, which means the flesh of the gods. And they were used for communication with demonic entities. And... and um, we cannot we cannot pretend that that was not so. Mm -hmm. This was the case, and uh, indeed, if if the Aztecs had not been those people who murdered their neighbors, who used their neighbors as a sort of farm. I mean, if you imagine a society which was run by serial killers, 
and right. in the interests of serial killers. That's roughly Aztec society in 1519. So they would have neighboring tribes who they would prey on. They could easily have completely defeated them, but they preferred not to completely defeat them. They preferred to use them for warfare every year, make war on them, take captives, bring the captives back to Tenochtitlan, and cut out their hearts. And this is why there's karma. There's such a thing as karma. Where this is why Montezuma was brought down. I mean, 490 Spaniards turn up on the coast of Mexico and destroy a, a standing army of 200,000 men. Why does that happen? It happened because the neighbors of the Aztecs hated the Aztecs. They utterly hated them. And, and they were looking for liberation from that, from that horror that was being inflicted on well, them. Well, isn't that a better um, – isn't that a – I shouldn't say a better, but isn't a uh, possibility that what you're dealing with is – a bunch of sociopaths and a bunch of crazy people, and if you introduce psilocybin into their system mm -hmm. in this insane warlike world, mm -hmm. that what you're conjuring up is their imagination. Yeah, and yeah. is the 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 inner. I mean, the the desire to manifest these yeah. things yeah. that would f ask them to do horrible things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a core behavior pattern in human beings when they get in control of armies yes yeah it is yeah. absolute complete total ruthlessness, ruthlessness. barbaric behavior yeah. is not only is it is it beneficial but it's necessary it's it's applauded yeah it's applauded and it's it, necessary and it wins you medals and if you don't do it someone around you is going to do it so you have yeah. to do it yeah so, so that you, so the, there's the, the you, there's the interesting question right there i mean we right. have armies now in the world today mm -hmm. which are going out doing murderous stuff right um and so the question is if we if we were to be in such a position that we could massively introduce psychedelics into those into those armies would it actually make them worse or better this is i'm not sure what the answer is you know i'm not i'm not sure what's very honest is. of you to not be yeah. sure and yeah. that is the i think there's no way to be sure we know that the the vikings they they berserkered on mushrooms they were using was it amanita muscaria Am they took muscaria, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I never had much luck with that. Me neither. Yeah, that's me, what I hear from a lot yeah, of people. Me, me neither. So with the, it felt wanna, weird. If you want to have luck with it, you've got to pass it through urine. Urine. You've got yeah. to pass it through a reindeer or, <laughs> or through or through the bladder of a shaman. Yeah. Then you'll better work. You know. Oh, how convenient! <laughs> you have to drink shaman piss. Yes. Yeah, that's the thing that they always say. You have to recycle your urine. I'm like, it's as though the um, the, the body functions as a filter. Yeah. And it removes certain impurities, which then uh, allow the good stuff to remain, and that comes through in urine. And apparently, you can pass it through seven human bodies. It doesn't lose. Hey, easy. <laughs> um, I know uh, a, a buddy who did it. He uh, he was on mushrooms, and they told him to drink his urine. He's like, I am so high right now. I do not need to drink my urine. And they're like, Trust me, drink your urine. And he said he drank his urine. It was like just getting shot through a cyclone. Right. Right. Boom! He said yeah. the whole thing just took some incredible path yeah. from drinking his own urine. Yeah, I must say that's not an experience I've had or, or, would, <laughs> or would welcome, but, but that's what the research shows. I have drunk my own urine on several occasions. Have you? Yeah, just to see. Because I, I read about urine therapy, so I okay. wanted to find out what it was about. It's like, a does big it, thing in does India. It, yeah, yeah, does it really make you feel better when you're sick? Yeah. And it did work, but it might have been totally might have been placebo. Yeah. I don't know. But there was one time when I was sick and I, I took it. And I, I called my friend Jan up and I'm like, dude, I drank my own piss and it worked. <laughs> It was, just, it was crazy because he was like big on it, you know. He's big on urine does, therapy does, does and it taste okay? Stuff. 
It doesn't taste nearly as bad as you would think it tastes. Okay. The idea is a lot worse than the actual reality of right. the urine. Yeah, the idea is hard to grasp. Yeah, but it's just yeah. like warm water. Okay. It's not It's not horrific tasting. Okay. You gag a little when you smell it. You're like, yeah. I can't believe I'm going to drink this. But once you're actually <laughs> drinking it, it's really, it's not that big a deal. I, mean, I haven't done it in a long time. I yeah. want to say, like, Leota Machida, who's a, a famous UFC fighter, he drinks his own urine every morning. Okay. And there's another guy, Juan Manuel Marquez, a famous yeah. boxer from Mexico. Same thing. Yeah. Was drinking his own. I think he quit. He but gave up. If you're going to do that, you might as well have some Amanita Muscaria in there. Yeah, you might as well. And even then, yeah. I wonder if when you're when a person goes completely psycho, when you're living in war, and one of the things about the Mexicans, the Aztecs, rather, is uh, I don't even think they had horses yet. No, they didn't. This is this is one of the reasons again yeah. why a r- relatively small force of Spaniards were able to defeat them. Yeah, was because the horse had been extinct in the Americas for twelve thousand years. Wow! From the end of the last ice age, and so when the Spanish turned up with actually only sixteen horses, sixteen heavy heavy hunters, that were um, trained for for warfare, uh, European armies had had thousands of years to develop strategies to deal with uh, men on horseback. Uh-huh. And there were de- there were definite specific tactics and responses that you used when you were charged, but the the Maya and the Aztecs they had no idea what they were looking at. They they actually, if you look at their accounts, which I've which I've done, you'll find that they initially thought that they were dealing with supernatural beings, which were part part deer actually, because that was the nearest animal that they could relate to a horse, part deer and part human, um, and and they didn't know how to handle these things and they you know they're coming down at you at 25 or 30 miles an hour they're covered in armor uh the horse and the man and and uh, it's a pretty terrifying prospect and they broke armies of tens of thousands of men were were just fled in terror at the at the sight of these uh, these entities charging down on them eventually they learned um and there's a famous case that one of the tribes in Mexico that fought most vigorously against Montezuma were a people called the Tlaxcalans. He used them for human sacrifice. They're very independent, spirited people, great warriors. And you would have thought when the Spanish came into Mexico that the first people who would become their allies would be the Tlaxcalans. But in fact, the Tlaxcalans had a, a heroic character called Xicotenca, who was their battle king. And he saw the future, and he saw what, what Spain would eventually do to Mexico. And so initially... And very hard, he fought the Spanish, tooth and nail, for over a long campaign that lasted about six weeks. Um, and during that, during that campaign, on one, on one occasion, one of his warriors actually took the head off a horse with a single blow of their weapon, which was a bit like a sword. It was made of wood. It was called a macuahuito, and it had flakes of obsidian lined along the edges of the blade. And that horse was not wearing armor that day, and the horse was beheaded, shocked the Spanish. It was the first time suddenly there was proof for the people in front of them that these animals were not supernatural, that they could be, that they could be killed. And, uh, but eventually, you know, Cortez was a terrorist. He went around massacring whole villages. He burned people at the stake. He fed people to dogs. And eventually the Tlaxcalans did the calculation, and they said, we better join this guy rather than carry on with this. And so eventually they did join forces with him, and suddenly he had 100,000 auxiliaries who were ready to take uh, Moctezuma on. Jesus Christ. You just can you imagine living back then? Extraordinary s- times. Strange And I times. have to say, although I, although I really detest a lot of the things that the Spanish did, I have to say those 490 men 
they had balls of steel. <laughs> you know, they had balls of steel. I mean, to turn oh, up yeah. on to turn up on this distant coast with no resources, no reserves, nothing to fall back on, and to know that you're confronting a, an enemy that is a militaristic power that has hundreds of thousands of men under arms that sacrifices you if it catches you, and still to go for it, that takes tremendous courage. Cortes actually scuttled all his ships so that his men could not flee. The ships were scuttled. What does that mean, scuttled? Sunk. He sunk them. Put holes in them? Yeah. He put holes oh. in them and sunk them. And oh, gangster. And, and, and then he said, this is it. There's no going back. Jesus Christ. We conquer, we conquer, or we, or we die. What a fucking psycho. Yeah, so a total psycho. So it's been interesting for me because this is my, my latest writing um, effort has been, has been a novel about the Spanish conquest of Mexico. These days I do novels as well as nonfiction. It's been interesting for me to get inside the head of a man like Cortez, to get inside the head of a man like Moctezuma, uh, and to and to figure out what what drove them and what what made these these characters what what they what they were and I have a witch in the story a young Aztec witch and I have oh, wow. a famous woman called Malinal who became Cortez's lover um, who had a grudge against Montezuma history doesn't tell us why but I give her a motive in the story because he tried to sacrifice that's kind of cool that you could do that with history you can do that with history <laughs> and you can't you can do that with fiction and so. She, she's a key player in, the, in not just in my story, but in the story of history, because she became Cortez' interpreter. She yeah. was very clever. She learned Spanish very, very fast. And she would be... So in the paintings from those days, you always see her standing beside Cortez. And coming out of her mouth is the glyph that means speech. And, and she gave the whole story away to Cortez. She told Cortez how to defeat Montezuma. And that was to play on the myth of Quetzalcoatl, of the feathered serpent, who would return and bring in a new age and overthrow a wicked king. And she had Cortez fill the boots of Quetzalcoatl. Wow. How did you get so involved in the, the Aztec culture? Just It's so fascinating. When I was I mean, it's almost impossible to when, avoid when, once it when, starts. This is the book, by the way. This is War God. War God, yeah. yeah. This, is, God. this is it. Um, when I was researching Fingerprints of the Gods, back in um, the early 90s, um, I traveled extensively and widely in Mexico as part of my research because Mexico is a fascinating place from the from the point of view of a lost civilization you know we have the Olmec culture we have these that, those gigantic stone heads um, from a site that's thought to be three and a half thousand years old I think it's probably much older than that on the Gulf of Mexico heads in the form of African heads which is very puzzling and weird um, but also uh, I images of, of uh, people with very strongly Caucasian features with, with massive beards and, and definitely not American Indian faces. And there they are. So I was wondering, are these the remnants of some lost civilization? Because history does not explain how individuals with that appearance ever turned up in, uh, in Mexico. And um, I inadvertently, as I was researching Fingerprints of the Gods in Mexico, I inadvertently traveled the route of Cortez. Uh, and I found myself uh, again and again crossing the path that Cortez had taken from uh, the Gulf of Mexico up to what is now Mexico City. And I began to realize there was a fascinating story to tell here and a story that had never been properly told. And I used the accounts of some of the conquistadors, men like Bernard Diaz, who give us, who give us eyewitness accounts of Aztec society. Uh, this helped me to under... Because the Aztecs, 
were latecomers in the civilization of Mexico, but they they'd only existed as a as a as a, an empire for two hundred years before Cortez came. Uh -huh. uh, but they revered earlier cultures, um, and and particularly the uh, amazing pyramid site of Teotihuacan, thirty miles north of Mexico City, was which means the place where men became gods. So I was investigating the possibility of a lost civilization, but I was kind of imbibing the story of Cortez and and of the Aztecs at the same time, and I felt this kind of pall of sadness that hangs over Mexico, this feeling that something terrible happened there. Really? And what's at the heart of my story, without, without giving too much of it away, is this, is this notion of demonic influence, that Montezuma, and I accept it could be projection of the individual's mind because he's just a particularly wicked, evil individual, or it could be that there are real demons out there. So Montezuma is communicated with and advised by Huitzilopochtli, the war god, and Cortez is well known, had believed he had a special relationship with St. Peter, uh, and, that, and he in dreams encountered St. Peter, and St. Peter advised him to carry out some of the most horrific acts of genocide that have been ever recorded in the history of the Americas. And so the... How the, convenient. The, yeah. The speculation of the novel is that both the entity that appeared to Moctezuma as the war god and the entity that appeared to Cortez as St. Peter were actually one and the same demonic entity seeking to multiply human misery because that's what demons do. And if we think it was bad under the Aztecs, let's be honest and accept that it was a thousand times worse after the Spanish took over. The population of Mexico was calculated to be 30 million in 1519. Within 40 years, it was 1 million. 29 million people died. Gigantic, wow. horrendous genocide. And the Spanish were monsters. This, they, they would use people to test the edge of their weapons. Let's just see if we can chop off somebody's arm here. Let's see what this axe will do. Oh, the dogs are hungry. Let's just throw a bunch of people to the dogs. That's where the phrase throwing them to the dogs comes from, as a matter of fact. So wow. they, were, they were awful people. And it's been a dark story to write, but I've, I, I've, I've also found that in this, in this world, in this realm at that time, there was, there was the capacity for love. There were decent people who did their best. My dad is a pretty sensible guy. He's never m for weirdness or spiritual shit. He's just not that mm. kind of guy. Mm. Um, but he was telling me about going to Gettysburg. Yeah. And he said... That was a horrendous battle. In he said he could feel sadness mm. in the air. Mm. He said it was inescapable. It was overwhelming. Yeah. And he said, I just didn't expect that. He said, yeah. you know, I didn't, I mean, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the knowledge of what happened there. He goes, but I don't think so. Just no. like, he goes, it was like it was in the air. Permeates, permeates the atmosphere. And you felt that. I felt that very strongly, that there was this terrible, <sighs> terrible high? sadness hanging over me. So I was always high. <laughs> <laughs> could have been that, right? Yeah. Were you been. high in Mexico, you fucking yeah, gangster? Yeah, yeah, I got high in Mexico. God yeah. damn, that's yeah. dangerous. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about this because there's a guy on my message board. His name is Frodo Swaggins, and he sent me a cool link um, to um, this new um, thing that's been found under Teotihuacan. Mm -hmm. They found a jade mask yeah. from an earlier era yeah. and um, some some building, 
some some work underneath yeah. there that they're investigating mm -hmm. now that they believe was Olmec. Yeah, yeah, doesn't surprise me at all. I think I think we're going to find that Teotihuacan actually goes way back, not just to the beginnings of the historical epoch, but far deep into prehistory. And the Olmec, the so-called Olmecs of Central America, may go back ten, twelve thousand years. They may not be. I don't think we should just limit them to the last three and a half thousand years. So. This is the case with many of these sites. It's the same, by the way, if you go to Chichen Itza. If you can get inside the um, pyramid of Kukulkan, Chichen Itza, and Kukulkan is just another name for Quetzalcoatl, you'll find that it's built on top of another pyramid, which is inside it, an older pyramid, <laughs> and preserved completely inside it. And you can even get inside that, that older pyramid. And I think it's the case all over the world that sites have been built on top of older sites, reincarnated in a way. So there was an ancient sacred place and later cultures came along and honored it and built new monuments on top of it. But, but the, and the mistake the archaeologists make is that the origins of the site are the later culture, and they don't take account of the earlier culture. Well, that was one of the things that John Anthony West was suggesting yeah. about Egypt when they show the very different construction methods yeah. that coincidentally are below the ground. Yes. Like you have to dig out the sand to pull these things up, and oh, lo and behold, they look different. Yeah, and that's like the yeah. Osirion at... Um, uh, in Abydos in Upper Egypt, which is 50 or 60 feet lower than the Temple of Seti I and was actually covered with 50 feet of sedimentation until archaeologists dug it out, but they still insist on giving it to Seti I. You know. um, <laughs> it's a fascinating thing, the, the denialism yeah. that's involved in Egyptology. It is. It that Zawi Hawass dude is a trip just to watch him talk about things. You're like, how are you in control of how this thing gets labeled or discovered or researched? It's an extraordinary thing, Zawi his rise to power and then his subsequent fall. Is he in trouble now? Is he in He's jail? He's in deep shit. Is he going to jail? Uh, yeah. Almost what did he do? His corruption? Arrest. Um, so, well, no. His main, his main thing was that he was closely associated with the Mubarak family, particularly with Susan Mubarak, the wife of the deposed president, Hosni Mubarak. Uh -huh. And they protected him so he could do whatever he liked uh -huh. while Mubarak was running Egypt. And therefore, he was one of the closest to Mubarak. Uh, in the Egyptian regime. So when Mubarak fell and a whole new system came into play in Egypt, Zahi was one of the first to go. And uh, it's, it was a shocking, the, 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 the John Anthony West series, Magical Egypt, is one yeah, of my favorite DVD fantastic. series and John ever. is such a brilliant human being and He's awesome. devoted his life to exploring the mystery of Egypt and the magic of Egypt. This is, this is what archaeologists never do. And if he's listening, I owe you an email, dude. I swear to God, I'm going to email you back quick. I've just been crazy busy. He's getting I had an email, with the email exchange with John today. Actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've been so swamped with this new TV show that I'm doing that I, I, I'm behind on everything, text yeah. messages and yeah. emails and, and all that. But I'm a big fan of that guy's work. And that Magical Egypt thing is just one of the most stunning documentary series I've, I've ever watched. It's, it's, it's like 10 DVDs or something like yeah, that. It's an immense amount that, of work. That's right. And incorpor incorporating John's just vast encyclopedic knowledge of the mysteries of Egypt. It's, yeah. all, it's all, ex all expressed in there. Incredible. And so John is about to be vindicated, I would say. Um, yeah. He and, um, and Robert Schock from Boston University. Well, it was, this was John's work initially, and Robert Schock became involved in it, which was the, you'll remember, the argument about the Sphinx. Yes. The Sphinx bears very characteristic erosion marks, both on its body and on the trench dug around it, and that those are the marks of precipitation-induced weathering of exposure to thousands of years of heavy rainfall. Cut a long story short, no such rainfall in Egypt in the last 5,000 years. You have to go back 10, 12,000 years, end of the last ice age, to get that kind of climate. 
and and then you have to have thousands of years of those conditions to create that to kind get of that, erosion to get that to get that weathering. So when John and John Anthony West and Robert Schock dropped this bombshell on Egyptology in roughly 1992 that the Sphinx actually might be thousands of years older than the Egypt, Egyptologists imagined, there was a huge outcry. And Egyptologists became very, very angry about it because they were threatened in the, in the core of their being. And one of the arguments they made, which they thought was the killer argument, was, look, you're saying this monument is 12,000 years old, but there are no other large monuments anywhere in the world which are 12,000 years old. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately for the Egyptologists, that's no longer true because there's the, just the most amazing site has been discovered in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, we talked about the la that the last time you Amazing. were on. Amazing. Incredible and, and, site. And, and, and it was deliberately buried by the people who made it. 14,000 years ago. Well, no, they, they, it looks like it was made 12,000 years 12, ago. 12,000. Deliberately buried 10,000 years ago. And that means that no later culture has tramped over it to confuse the dating record. And, oh. and therefore, we have a pristine site. And when a site is pristine and it's approached by a mainstream archaeologists such as Klaus Schmidt from the German Archaeological Institute, who's the excavator, he has to honestly put his hand on his heart and say, this site is 12,000 years old. And if Gobekli Tepe is 12,000 years old, then there's no reason on earth why the Sphinx shouldn't be 12,000 years old. And if the Sphinx and Gobekli Tepe are 12,000 years old, then I'm sorry, we have to rewrite the history books. There was a real weird moment um, on whatever documentary it was that showed uh, Robert Schock presenting his findings yeah. because he's an academic and he he's is. the only yeah. one that they would allow to present. And Professor of geology at Boston University. And yeah. John Anthony West is not an academic. Yeah. He's, an, he's an Egypt expert. He's yes. a guy who's immersed himself in Egypt Correct. his whole life. But I don't know what his formal education is, but the fact that that guy hasn't given, been given some sort of uh, – at least like someone test him. And give the guy a fucking degree, because yeah. like, who yeah. hell knows more about ancient Egypt than John Anthony West? Nobody knows more about and ancient Egypt. And it should obviously his credentials should be examined. Mm -hmm. I mean, his 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 words should be checked. Yeah. But I'm sure that he's on. He's I totally mean, on. He's on. I've yeah. never heard a single thing about any of his translations, about no. any of his that seemed to me anything less than cunty if they were negative. Like, it didn't make any sense at all. Like, yeah. I think he's a pretty astounding person when it comes to his knowledge I think John is an astounding person, and I think, that he's, I think that he's brought a unique insight to ancient Egypt, and he's done far more for the exploration of the past than any credentialed Egyptologist yeah. has ever done. So now that Gobekli Tepe's been clearly established at at least 10,000 years old, that's well, when it was 12, buried. 12,000 12, years old, because the best stuff okay. is the oldest. Right. 10,000 years old, 10,000 years ago, like a time capsule, they bury it. And by the way, it's only 5% of it has been excavated. A huge, vast area yeah. remaining to be excavated. So there's, who knows what the hell they're going to find under there, whether yeah. they're going to find artifacts or what have you that, that, that explain things a little bit better. But we know people were capable of doing that then. Yes. Now. That's 100%. And, and therefore, if they're capable, because some of those megaliths weigh, uh, one of them weighs 50 tons, you know. Mm -hmm. Gobekli Tepe is a stone circle. There's a circle of series of stone series circles. Of stone circles. And th th therefore, we're looking at a culture that 12,000 years ago was already capable of doing that. In other words, they, we can't say that they just made that up overnight. Right. There has to be a long background to that that got them to the point where they could do that. And that, that is why uh, Gobekli Tepe is the single most important archaeological site in the world, because it could not have appeared by magic. It had to be the result of a culture which had figured out how to work with large and heavy blocks of stone and to, and to quarry them and carve them and move them around. And that, we're all, our ancestors are supposed to have been hunter-gatherers, you know, living in small groups um, without any large-scale organization. And Gobekli Tepe gives the lie to that. 
And there's a very sophisticated carving method employed on these these beams, a three-dimensional carving method, yeah, where instead of carving the image into the stone itself, which is the easy way to draw yeah, something, yeah. they actually left the piece of stone. Yeah. Like if they drew a lizard, yeah. they would cut away everything else and it's leave the lizard to stand out. Exactly. That's it's very carving difficult in, carving to do. Carving in high relief. It's extremely, it's extremely difficult to do, and again, it takes practice takes a culture that's worked on that. So we have to say there's a background to this which goes thousands of years earlier than the site that we found. And as more excavation is done, I believe more and more of that is is going to come out. So One of your fa my favorite quotes of yours is that we're a civilization with amnesia. A species with amnesia. Species yeah. with yeah. amnesia. Yeah. It's, it's such a great way of putting it. Because when you keep digging holes and finding things that are like old as fuck, like Gobekli Tepe was found by a farmer, right? Mm -hmm. He was just putzing around and is like, what the hell is this? He kicks it, it yeah. he moves it around, he's like, this is weird. Yeah. He starts digging and boom, it's yeah. one of the most important archaeological findings ever. Absolutely. But none of this existed while you guys were dealing with Zali Huas. No. I was uh, watching that, and the the other thing was the other academic who he was communicating with, whatever that guy's name is, no need to even say it, mm. such a cunty human being, the way he was <laughs> laughing, like, what yeah, culture yeah, yeah. are we talking about that existed 10,000 years exactly. ago? They, <laughs> Just, exactly. why, why is yes. that funny to you? Let him remain nameless, yeah. I know let, who you let mean. Let him remain nameless. And, and um, yeah, they pour scorn on these, on these ideas. They're Intellectual so, scorn. They're so fucking arrogant. You know, not all of them, right? Not, not, not all of them. You know, I, I mean, I, most of them are doing amazing things. The listen, reason why you I, have an incredible hip, I could, right? Yeah, some and, bad and, motherfuckers in academia. Who's, and, and, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm not. I'm not insulting science as such. And, just humans. Just shitty ego humans. There's just some shitty ego-driven humans, and it happens that archaeology is one of those areas of study which is very territorial, and where mm. where scholars have staked their reputation on a particular view of the past and they get very angry when anybody threat threatens that. And they're very, very, very obnoxious to one another as well as to outsiders. And they've told this story and given degrees based yeah. on what they've taught for decades. Yeah. Yeah. Decades after decades after yeah. decades. And to all of a sudden step in and say, we were wrong. Yeah. Um, there's no way this very, guy, you know. It's very difficult to do. It's very, very difficult to do. And, and in saying these negative things about Egyptology, I also do want to say that they also do great work. There's a fantastic work has been done by Egyptology, um, and, and I don't think that I could have written any of my books if I hadn't been able to draw on the, on the huge amount of data that, that Egyptology has provided. But sometimes I put a different interpretation on it from the one that they put on it. So I don't want to put them down completely. They've done, they've done great work, but they're narrowly focused on a particular reference frame, a particular idea of how human history evolved. And they should let the evidence speak for itself rather than impose that and we should point out that we should point out that there is a small group of people um, that uh, not a small group. I shouldn't even say I shouldn't quantify them. Um, there's some people believe that the water erosion feature it was actually wind and sand. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen that argument, and um, I'm not a geologist, obviously, but when I saw Robert Schock deal with yeah. that argument. It doesn't seem to hold water. It doesn't. I've, it doesn't I've hold had water. Shock's got an excellent answer to all, to all of that, and and it is not. It is not wind weathering so it yeah. was not sand anyway the sphinx was covered with sand for a very long period the way of time. it comes like cuts down and in it yeah. looks like water had been pouring down Channels for a long time cutting yeah. cutting grooves Smooth into the rock. and yeah. groovy yeah. like you know i mean yeah. 
I don't know though. I'm not. I'm not yeah. qualified. To... Well, that's why. That's why Shock, you know, has, has made a marvelous contribution to this whole field because he is a credentialed academic. Mm -hmm. He is a geologist, and he's been prepared to put his reputation on the line and say, "I'm sorry, I think the Sphinx is really, really old." Yeah. What bothers me about the people that debunk it is they claim to be correct. The yeah. people that look, it's very obvious that you're dealing with some pretty significant erosion. Yeah. So why is it so different looking than the erosion on the outside of the Sphinx, which yeah. looks like wind and sand? Yeah. Why are you dealing with it in this enclosure where this thing was buried for so long? Like, yeah. why, why is it different here? Is it yeah. the, the type of stone? Is that what it is? Yeah. I mean, what, what is it? Or is it evidence of an older time? Yeah. Is, is it possibly something that was yeah. built into some malleable stone a long fucking time ago? And then pretending that it's not possible is yeah. kind of silly. It's kind of silly. Because you don't know. We don't have a really accurate it's, map it's of what happened 10,000 years ago. And, How and do you know? The, that the history of science is such we know for again and again that... that fixed and rigid views about how the world is do get overthrown. They yes. do get changed. But reluctantly in some reluctantly, areas. Reluctantly, with a fight, but eventually the new evidence overwhelms the old. And I think we're, in the realm of ancient history, <coughs> we're poised on the verge of that kind of revolution. I think it's going to happen. With Zawi Hawass out of the picture, is mm. it possible now that they can excavate some sites that they weren't allowed to before? Like, I know there was something where they wanted to do something under the paw of the Sphinx. They had found some chamber. and the That's a needed, um, that's a needed uh, project, which, need, which needs to be done. I don't know. I don't know whether the new authorities... The, right now, Egypt is just so busy surviving and so busy... Right. So busy trying to figure out where it goes next, and um, you know they've had a, a major political change, um, but many of the old guard are still in place in many many ways, and uh, there is this popular uprising in Egypt, but it's disorganized and unplanned. It's a, right now the last thing that most Egyptians are thinking about is um, is ancient history. My uh, take on that part of the world, as a comedian is that if that's the birthplace of civilization, that's the cradle of civilization, that those people, right now, that's the townies of the world. Yeah, That's yeah. the people that never left. The yeah. people that literally are living like with the, the echoes of the behavior of people that lived 10,000 years ago yeah. in that very same spot. Yeah, yeah. And well, that's and why particular, so... In particular, Egypt's Coptic yes. population, who number out of 60 million, I believe, roughly 6 million, are Copts. So they are they are practicing a particularly ancient form of Christianity. Their language is structurally very closely related to the ancient Egyptian language, and they are the direct inheritors of the ancient Egyptian tradition. So when ancient Egyptians were converted to Christianity around about three or 400 years after Christ, um, that was the beginning of the Coptic church in, in ancient Egypt, and the Coptic people are the true inheritors of the lost wisdom fascinating of ancient Egypt. and i bet they suck to hang out with <laughs> i bet they're really annoying i bet they've got some crazy rules they do a lot of weird stuff to their people what? Well, they do they, do they are they involved in genital manipulation no not no? really who's they're doing that they're a persecuted, oh, they're persecuted minority yeah. oh okay yeah, very very much so. six million of them yeah but out of 60 million and in an area which is um you know which is involved with islamic fundamentalism very, very much it's difficult to be a minority in that that situation so what you're saying is better it's better to be a christian in that area no <laughs> I, I i think that all three of the world's monotheistic faiths whether it's christianity judaism or islam have been responsible for just a vast amount of misery in the world and i think we're not going to move on as a human race unless we actually move on from that time where we don't we don't accept that something is true just because our parents or some guy with a beard tells us that it's true.
you know, where we mm -hmm. look for direct experience of the spirit and the divine. This is the problem with all of those big religions. I don't care whether they call themselves Christians, Muslims, or Jews, you know, is that their hierarchies, their bureaucracies, their power structures, and uh, they do not offer a direct experience of it. That's why all of them persecute the use of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. They don't want people to have direct contact with the divine. Are you um, hopeful about things when you see like Arab Spring, people are rising up and trying to remove dictators and what happened in Egypt, getting rid of Mubarak? And then I am hopeful, and I think, it's, I think it is happening all over the world, and I think the Internet has played a part with it, and it's happening in America. Um, it, you know, I, I, I come here as a, as a foreigner. I'm British. I come to, I come to America often. Um, I have family here in America. I feel very closely connected with America. And America is a paradox. You know, it's a huge paradox because on the world stage, uh, America is a very dark and malignant force, which, uh, which does tremendous harm uh, consistently and has done for, for a long time. But at the individual level, there's a tremendous spirit of awakening in America. Look just what's happening with cannabis laws in America in the last, in the last 10 years. That's unimaginable in Britain. We can't make changes like that. Why but is here, that? Because we don't have this spirit of independence. We don't have the structure where individual states can make decisions on key issues like that. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, in America, the, there's a conflict between state law and federal law. You know, the federal government is not always respecting state laws and is seeking to persecute people who are, who are using cannabis. But, you know, I think that that in itself, the fact that a number of states have decriminalized or even legalized cannabis uh, is a sign of a, a, a sea change that is underway at the moment. And what it reflects is an awakening of the American people. So even though, you know, huge negative forces are still at work and are still sitting in the seat of power, I think I think there's a tremendous hope for the future in America, and that comes from the, the the awakening to consciousness of the American people. And maybe it's small right now, but it's growing. And in that sense, far more than any other, I believe America is leading the world. That there is this this possibility for awakening here. And maybe it goes back to the, you know, to the founding fathers and the frontier days, and just the the the, the, the sense that that people should be able to make decisions about their own lives without government telling them what to do. That's the step we all need to take. We need to move ahead. We need to set aside our commitment to these large monolithic religions. We need to set aside our commitment to large monolithic states. We need to run our own lives and make decisions for ourselves. And it just happens that that is very close to the heart of what America is all about. What it should be all about instead what of what it's all about, about is yeah. we're living inside of the balls of the dick that's fucking the world. Yeah. That's really yeah. what, what it's all about. But we're living inside trapped. the balls, you're in a position to give that dick that's fucking the world a real pain, you know? <laughs> well, it would that's, be even better is if the d dick would just get its shit together. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's not well, It's only going to be done by the American people, by the, by the awakening of the American people. And they will say enough is enough, and we will not accept this crap anymore. And slowly but surely the old guard dies yeah. off. Or And then there's a huge industry of brainwashing which goes on, makes it difficult for people to think for themselves. Um, you know, it's very brainwashing the, like how? Well, through the media. I mean, just through through the through the control. So there's this whole ethic that, that our lives are supposed to be about production and consumption and nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, that we define ourselves in terms of what we own. We're prepared to go into huge debt to own a shiny car or mm -hmm. you know a better house. 
and and uh, that's supposed to be right and proper and 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 then we're supposed to we define ourselves in terms of our consumption uh, and we must work hard we must go to the office every day we must all of these all of these things are brainwashing and then and then there's the TV we can have a little relaxation we can enjoy some fantasy maybe we'll win the lottery one day all of these are mechanisms of control which which keep people quiet in society and distractions distractions from the great beyond yeah. it's just there's too much out there to really stop and think about yeah. about the fact that your body's going to slowly expire, the, yeah. the, even the sun that heats the world itself is going to die out. Yeah. And it, I think the possibilities, when we really consider them all, are pretty terrifying. So terrifying. we watch Storage Wars. You know, you, do you have Storage Wars? No. One of the best shows ever. Not really. It's terrible. But, I mean, it's, it's hilarious. Mm. They go to storage units that people haven't paid for. Right. And they open up the door and they find things in there like, whoa, what is this? And they bid on the door. Like there's like ten people sitting around and they okay. all bid on the contents. And if you get lucky, who knows? There might be gold bullion in there that right. someone saved. Right. Or not. Right. And so these uh idiots go and open up these boxes and then pull shit out. And then it turns out that it's not even really what the contents were. They right. added fake contents okay. to these right. storage places. Right, right. But people watch it and they just it's get distracted. It's a, it's, a, it's a distraction. So, so if we're going to wake up, um, we have to overthrow these systems of mental control, which are, which are in place. Right. Um, or take responsibility for your own time. Because those, those distractions are just, they're money extractors. That's what they are. They're they, all they, money. They're they, all money extractors. Yeah, they're selling Tide or Toyota trucks or whatever the hell yeah. they're selling. Yeah. And, you know, they're just putting on this thing because it's a, it's a machine that they can press and it yeah. just, it's like an automatic program that runs and extracts yeah. money. It's not really necessarily a work of art. It's just, you know, you've made a hack. Terrifying prospect, really. But, but it does, you don't have to do it. You know, I think what, what people really need is, what people, people, you know, it sounds crazy, but what people really need is guys like you to talk about things. Mm -hmm. Guys like you to put ideas out there that makes them go, yeah, what am I doing? Yeah, what is this? And, what is, and start the ball rolling of rethinking their, their thought process. Rethinking is uh, badly needed. It's uh, everything, and, right? And, and I, it's, it's everything. And I do, and I do think that uh, something that I bang on about a lot is the issue of sovereignty over consciousness. Yes. You know, that is, to me, just one of the very, very, very key issues, which a lot, a lot of people have been persuaded not ever to think about. But once you start thinking about it and you realize that this mysterious, and we don't even know what consciousness is, you know. I mean, there is no, there is no clear science on what it is or, or to explain it. But we know we've got it, and whatever it is, it's the essence of ourselves. And why can we not make sovereign decisions over the most intimate and personal part of ourselves? It's crazy. Yeah. And and when you, I find when you put that to put put that to people, even even to arch republicans, you know, they get mm -hmm. it. They they suddenly realize, you know, that even um, that, that 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 actually legalizing psychedelics is a republican issue. I'll tell you what the problem is, Graham Hancock, is the children. What you're you're ignoring is you're endorsing drug use to children, and I think that's incredibly irresponsible. That's exactly what Ted said when they banned my talk. They, one, of their, one of their statements, they said that we, we can't allow this talk to be on the air because some young man might go off to South America and drink ayahuasca. That's um, so hilariously and, and dumb. And Ted cannot be seen to be endorsing the drinking of ayahuasca. Is that the well, – there was an, a huge issue with you. And by the way, your issue was after Eddie Huang came in here. And Eddie Huang yeah. told his gross story that makes you just go, ew, Ted. Yeah. Apparently John Anthony West has a Ted story as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's uh, – 
a, a lot of beautiful things that come out of TED, a lot of Some incredible talks. Yeah. But it seems like a, any organization, once people get into power and once people have the ability to yeah. tell other people what's cool and what's not cool, it starts getting weird. And you start telling Eddie Wong that he has to attend all these different things and meet all these donors and – like some kind of freaky cult. Yeah, he, well, that's what he felt like. Yeah. He felt like it was really strange. Now, your your thing got pulled, and what was the scientific explanation for why they got pulled? Well, um, it was there done. was you you had a, an exchange with yeah. one of the guys on TED. I read yeah. the comments, and you presented all the things that he had said, yeah. and said, "Please show your example yeah. of when I said this. I never said this." Yeah. What were the very? What were the thing that he accused you of, and what was the response? There were two of us who got our talks deleted. From Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert as well, Sheldrake right? is the other. His talk was called "The Science Delusion." My talk was called "The War on Consciousness." You can't be shitting on science like that. Called "The Science Delusion," <laughs> Rupert. How and dare you poke the? It was as though beehive. it was as though Ted felt that these talks must automatically be wrong. And that they had some kind of preconception about what we were saying. So they didn't even bother to sit down and listen to the actual 18-minute talk. It's not that much to mm-hmm. listen to, you know, before deleting it from their YouTube channel. They just said, this is pseudoscience. Uh, it's full of – and they listed a series of false statements that we'd supposedly made. But the problem was neither I nor Rupert had made those statements. They so actually, they never even bothered to look at it. No. They just read complaints and no. then responded they read on those complaints. They responded on the basis of those. So when we challenged them, okay, please go through – in my case, go through my talk and – and find where I say that ayahuasca allows you to communicate with an ancient mother culture. Where do I say that? I never said that in my talk. I never said any such thing in my talk. They actually couldn't do it. And, and Is that so, something you've said before? No, I've never, never said, said that. that. I've never you said that. You said it right now. I heard you. Well, <laughs> what, you, you know, take what a little I, clip of that. What I, and what I talked about was the mother goddess, <laughs> right. or the experience of an encounter with the mother right. goddess. But I never said it allows you to communicate with an ancient mother culture, mm-hmm. like a lost right. civilization. They knew I'd written books about lost civilizations, so they thought I must be bringing the, my lost civilization I beef see. into the into my TED talk, which I right. didn't. It didn't have anything to do with lost civilization. It was a talk about talk about consciousness. Anyway, the, and the real, the original version was giving up the green bitch. Where you were talking it was originally, about. I originally that's called what, the talk giving up the green. That's bitch when I watched because, it because I was giving my personal story of 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 uh, you know why I why I gave up uh, c- c- cannabis. Um, I changed that title because a lot of people pointed out to me that that's deeply disrespectful of cannabis and that for many people, cannabis is a green goddess. And right. cannabis was a green goddess for me, and I accepted that. So, and well, I thought, to those people, I'd say, fucking relax, okay? Because <laughs> I love cannabis too, but it didn't bother me. Yeah, people it, it, some people got really some, upset. I realized that to be upset. I realized that there is, in fact, a cannabis orthodoxy yes. as well, oh, which, yeah. I, which, by, which by talking about my... My, my quitting of cannabis, I had upset this orthodoxy. But when I looked at my talk, my talk was much more about the war on consciousness than it was about that. That's what it was really about. So, for example, I made the point that um, our society doesn't object in principle to altering consciousness. I mean, what happens when you put a kid on Ritalin? You know, that's a powerful pharmacological drug, which is altering consciousness. When you, when you overprescribe Prozac or Siroxat for conditions of depression that th- those drugs are altering consciousness we value alcohol we invest you know have b- multi-billion dollar alcohol industry people don't primarily re- drink alcohol because of the taste they drink it because it alters their consciousness in a way that they like and and so we don't object to altering consciousness in principle but we object to altering consciousness in certain kinds of ways which threaten the status quo and that's what psychedelics do they alter consciousness in ways that lead people to ask profound questions 
about the nature of the society they live in. And that appears to be the line that I crossed. So Ted tried to, tried to dress it up as pseudoscience. And when I called them on that, in the end, because they realized, I think, that they were, they'd got themselves into some kind of danger, and it's still there on the, on the webpage that, that Rupert and I call it their naughty corner. They mm -hmm. created a naughty corner of the TED website where our talks were put <laughs> back online and with all their reasons why they'd taken them off. So first thing they did was they crossed out all their reasons. So you can find that everything they said has actually been crossed out. And then they published our rebuttal. Deleted. So that, completely deleted? No, it's just the, we out. insisted that they, they accepted that nothing they'd said was true. Uh -huh. But we insisted they leave it there on the public record, but put a line through it. Oh, wow. So that, so that, and they so did that? They did that. They did, they did that. Oh, my God. They did that. And then That's they kind of a cool victory. I know. I know. <laughs> and they published our rebuttals in full. But it wasn't a complete victory because what they didn't do, which is all we wanted, was for our talks to be re reinstated on the TEDx YouTube channel. No, no, not only that, but you can't put your, t your talk online yourself. Well, no, I've, I have put my talk online myself. You have. And, uh, and, and, and so have about 100 other YouTube channels. Oh, beautiful. Um, and, and I think TED took such a massive beating. Uh, over this for, because it clearly was an act of censorship mm -hmm. however they tried to dress it up that they've decided not to go and pull uh, the talks from from YouTube which prob probably they could do so I mean my talk had 132,000 views on YouTube on their channel when they pulled it but since then it's had hundreds of thousands of more views all over the internet so you know they the, rather than actually suppress the talk I think it's called the Streisand effect. You know, rather than suppress the talks, they ended up multiplying. Same with same with Rupert. How is that a Streisand effect? Apparently, apparently, I think it was Barbara Streisand tried to stop some public statement that had been made about her, and it ended up multiplying the <laughs> statement. You know, when you try, this is the great thing about the internet. When you try to suppress something, it grows. It doesn't get suppressed. The internet is including dick pictures. It is. Yeah. got one of those out there. <laughs> Coming back around, Graham Hancock. I'm gonna find you. <laughs> I've never had my dick photographed. Congratulations. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> I plead the fifth. Um, so now the 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 page got pulled. Your your talk got pulled. It yeah. got reinstated. They crossed a line in the naughty corner. Yeah. And and put up in the naughty corner. But at least it's on YouTube as well. Yeah. And, all over YouTube. Yeah. Um. But is it possible that uh, this is what I know? Okay, I uh, I really love your work. I've been a fan ever since uh, Fingerprints of the Gods. I, it was a fascinating book that really changed the way I looked at history. Uh, you're, I think you're a brilliant guy, but I take more shit for for you from the like extreme science dorks. Mm -hmm. I take more shit about having you. Well, is Graham Hancock gonna come on your podcast yeah. and, and and pump out his pseudoscience? Yes. Like so many people get so twatty yeah. about you. Mm. And it's a, a science thing and it could be it mistakes that you've made in the past. We all make them I that they want to chirp mistakes, on. Yeah. Uh, it could be the whole Mars thing, yeah. the whole face on Mars thing. You got a little kooky with that. Mm -hmm. Got a little kooky mm -hmm. with that. I still think it's an interesting phenomenon. Them. It is interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting rocks on Mars. Yeah. It, yeah. it might have, at one point in time, had a culture on we it. We don't know what they are. No. We, we, need, need to do, we need to do more work. But yeah, I, do, I have annoyed scientists. I tell you what, it's not actually... I, I've certainly made mistakes. And, right. And, um, what about uh, junk DNA? There was uh, something about uh, the contents of junk DNA. There's one thing that they keep harping on They keep on talking about, about that. that you well, had erroneously I'd... stated... You know, something about the knowledge that we have of junk DNA. Well, uh, yes, I said that 97% of DNA is defined as junk, and, and uh, maybe it isn't. And, and that uh, there may be data stored on DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and as a matter of fact, th th this is now being done. D 
data is being stored on DNA. Um, so you, you just were misinformed? Um, I don't think that I was misinformed. I think that I was exploring an interesting, an interesting area of inquiry. And it's true since I published on that in 2005 that some new work has been done on junk, so-called junk DNA, and it is found to have a, an important biophysical function. Um, but what I, what I reported, and this was in my book Supernatural in 2005, was a study published in the magazine Science by Eugene Stanley, um, which looked at the language-like structure of junk DNA. The junk DNA has a structure uh, very similar to all human languages. There are certain patterns that repeat in languages that appear also in junk DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and this, I simply wanted to speculate on this. Is it possible that junk DNA is some kind of archive? I was looking, you know, in when I wrote Supernatural, I was looking at this connection uh, with entities that people have in altered states of consciousness. And, and I was saying that the kind of place I would you know, bet on is that in some weird way these entities may be real. That is in itself a very annoying statement to make to any materialist scientist. Right. But then I said, but maybe there's another possibility. Maybe there's a, an archive of information stored on all our DNA all around the world. And maybe in altered states of consciousness, we gain access to the archive. And that's maybe why people from all different cultures at different periods of history see the same thing. And I cited the work of Francis Crick, who was the discoverer of the double helix form of DNA uh, in a book that he wrote called Life Itself, where Crick speculates that DNA did not evolve on this planet. This is, the, this is the Nobel Prize winner, Francis Crick. This is not Graham Hancock who's making this statement. Crick suggests a, a phenomenon called directed panspermia, that, uh, that the reason that life exploded so rapidly and amazingly on this planet within 100 million years of the planet being cool enough to support life, roughly 4 billion years ago, the reason that it exploded so suddenly was that it came here from elsewhere. And he suggested that there had been some advanced alien culture on the other side of the galaxy that faced annihilation. Uh, perhaps a supernova was going to go off in their vicinity. And they looked desperately for some way to preserve life. And their first thought was, could they get themselves off the planet? And they realized that, yes, they could, but that they could not travel through interstellar space for thousands or millions of years to reach other possibly habitable planets. So in the end, what they did was they sent bacteria out into the universe on spaceships. And they genetically engineered those bacteria to make them incredibly hardy. This was Crick's suggestion, not mine. And the only yeah, thing you got to really say that <laughs> the only thing I added to it was if they, if his theory had be, were right, and that life spiraled up on this planet because one of those spaceships hit the ancient Earth and spilled out its cargo of genetically engineered bacteria. Well, maybe they wrote a message on the DNA of those bacteria, and maybe that message has been preserved highly preserved, and there are certain strands of DNA that are preserved for, for hundreds of millions or billions of years and passed down into modern human beings. And maybe it's a message for us about that lost ancestor culture that made the DNA that, or rather didn't make it, but engineered the DNA and the bacteria that started life on Earth and that eventually evolved into us. And it was just an interesting inquiry. 
as an By the way, this lends credence to the idea that Francis Crick did a lot of acid. Well, which he certainly did. Francis D- Crick some, was a, some deny this. Michio Kaku wouldn't agree with me on this. Well, Francis Crick was some a big user bitch. of acid, and, and so were Supposedly, many. Supposedly, allegedly. So, so were many intellectuals in that period. This is essentially the Prometheus story I guess in a lot is, of ways. Yeah, yeah I, guess it, I guess it is. So I thought it was an interesting area to inquire. Yes. Into. See, for me, I feel my, my role is to inquire into interesting things that are forbidden territory for scientists. And when I inquire into them, it doesn't mean that I'm insisting this is a fact. It mean, What I'm saying is this is something that we need an alternative point of view on, and let's look at and consider what this, what this might mean. And I may be completely wrong, but I think the exploration is worthwhile. That's the, that's the position that I take. But it does annoy scientists. I think the other reason it annoys scientists is because um, I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but I'm, I'm not particularly lunatic, you know, on a day-to-day basis. I'm not particularly kooky. I'm moderately rational. I can make an argument. I can express things. And, and I, I think if I was, you know, an obvious nutcase, they wouldn't need to get so angry with me. Mm-hmm. But, but because, because I'm, fairly, I'm fairly reasonable and open to discussion and persuasion, I think it makes me makes me more, a little bit more dangerous to them. And it's the same with John Anthony West. John is a very reasonable man. You know? He's coming up with extraordinary ideas about the past. Uh, but he's arguing them very, very well and very coherently and based on, based on evidence. Intellectual ideas also are the, the battlefield of scientists and science thinkers and science dorks. I mean, yeah. proving someone incorrect is a huge feather in your cap. Being yeah. able to point out inconsistencies, inco- yeah. cor- correcting mistakes. And that's how science works. Yes. And that's what's, uh, that's what's good Great about, about science. It. Yes. On the one hand, it's what's good about science, which is what you would call destructive criticism. Mm-hmm. Here is a new idea. Let's figure out any way we can to destroy it. Mm-hmm. If anything is left after we've exposed it to that fire for a decade, that thing that's left is probably worthwhile. That's, and and that's, that is the scientific method. I think there's room for another method. Here's this extraordinary idea that somebody put over. Let's look for what's good in that idea. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can find something good something in that. Possible. Idea. Yeah, see right. If there's something possible. Yeah, see if there's something possible there. Same be, approach, just in a positive way. It's just in a positive way rather than a, rather than a, a negative way. So, right. you know, I think, I think that both are, both, are, both are possible. It's the same attitude, essentially. You're trying yeah. to find truth. Yeah. It's just you're saying, uh, is, is, there, is there a possibility of this? Is there a truth in here? Yeah. And is there a benefit? Like. That's what a real Egyptologist would do if yeah. they examine the Sphinx. They would say, you know, this really bears some consideration. Yeah. This is really unique. Yeah. It's unusual. I and geologists so. seem to be pointing to this. Yeah. Let's 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 discuss let's this and let's this bring further, it up. rather yeah. than just get rid of it right at the beginning and massively laughing. destroy. <laughs> what culture are we talking about from <laughs> ten thousand years ago? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, with this destructive method, scientists seek to destroy each other's reputations. Right. And so, you know, many many great individuals have suffered most painful experiences as a result of this, but have ended up later to be proved to be right. Sometimes. Um, sometimes. Sometimes. Not, not, not in, not There's plenty in of quacks out there, too, and they need to be exposed. Sure, there are quacks. You know, one yeah. of the things I've, I'm doing this new show on the Sci-Fi Channel. It's called mm-hmm. Joe Rogan Questions Everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, uh, we're, I would like to get to the, the mysteries of uh, ancient civilizations, yes. whether or not there were some sort of Atlantean-type civilizations. Sure. And I would love to talk to you about this. But what, what I'm seeing when I'm doing this show is how important science really is. I'm getting a, a massive dose of the reality yeah. of how many people are 
really kooky out there yeah. and have some really kooky Agreed. ideas that they Agreed. cling to like a cat stuck in a tree. Yeah. And they won't let go of these fucking kooky ideas. And yeah. no matter how many experts you bring in there that are true experts on whatever subject it is at hand, if that person has a kooky idea that they've clung to, they are not letting that fucking thing go. No, they'll never let it go. That's why science is so important. No, science is, science is incredibly important. It's the ego and part am, that's a problem, right? I am right? sitting here in this chair with a pain-free hip as a result of science. Yeah. That is science. Science gave me my legs back. Science gave me my mobility. Science is how we're doing this podcast. Science is how we're doing this podcast. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's an incredible instrument. We should not despise it in itself. But we should, I think, be open to the view that there are other modes of inquiry into the nature of reality which should be also considered and could even be done 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 scientifically. Um, scientifically. Yeah. Uh, for example, psychedelics are a marvelous tool for inquiring into consciousness, this mystery of consciousness. And we could have detailed scientific studies. So here's the hypothesis. With psychedelics, we retune the receiver wavelength of the brain and gain – hypothesis, mind you – and gain access to other levels of reality, parallel universes, if you like, which are inhabited by intelligent beings. Okay, let's explore that hypothesis scientifically. How are we going to do that? Uh, At psych psychedelics, very best way, put people into deeply altered states of consciousness on cue, you know, and then get them to compare notes, get them to ask questions of those entities, see if any new information, any novel information comes back that couldn't possibly have been known, you know, that, that kind of thing. It's being done, interestingly, with near-death research. Um, uh, there is, you know, that's another area where most materialist mainstream scientists will say, nonsense, there's no possibility of uh, any kind of survival of death. But people report these astonishing near-death experiences, and they report... Uh, seeing things that they should not have been able to see. So now in operating theatres, in emergency rooms, uh, in a number of hospitals in London, uh, but also I believe in the United States as well, they have created shelves up at a high level uh, where they have placed certain images. And uh, they are recording the data right now when people have a near-death experience and they have had the sense of leaving their bodies and being up around the ceiling. Have they seen these images? If they've seen those images and it can be documented scientifically, then you know we have to think again about consciousness. So they're putting the images up there specifically to catch people looking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when the guy comes back, when he flatlines and he's considered to be brain dead, and they bring him back to life, and this is happening more and more with advanced resuscitation techniques, many of them report having experiences out of their body. Well, now here's a scientific way to test that. Is that imagination or yes. is there something real going on? And what's the data so far? Have people seen those images? Have they had there's any some, hits? There's some, quite compelling, there's some quite compelling data, but there's an elusive nature to the phenomenon, uh, which is that very often when somebody has a near-death experience, they've had it in the, the one theater that didn't have the images on view. So they're looking, they're looking for a How way... How convenient. How convenient. They're looking for a way around this, which might involve using, uh, like, iPad devices, which can be moved around very rapidly and placed in certain, certain spots. Where they resuscitate people. Where they're resuscitating people. I don't think... See, I think this is part of the issue. You know, when we say, why doesn't science do this? Or what if science did that? I really don't think it's science. I yeah. think science and the scientific method are awesome and very hugely important. Yeah. I think it's people. Yeah. I think the issue is people. It's personalities. It's sure. people's style of communication. Sure. It's people's styles of interaction and their the sense of competition that yeah. they have uh, with exchanging ideas and yeah. with exploring ideas. Yeah. There's a massive amount of competition involved in being intellectually correct. Yeah. 
getting those points, sure the points is. for we're, being we're all, correct. We're all human. We all want yeah. to be right. It's a know? it's a competition forum. I mean, yeah. I, I've seen it on my message board. I've yeah. seen it on Reddit. There's it, when you're writing something, you're not just writing something. You're also sort of expressing yourself in a way that you would like to get brownie points for. Yeah, that you would like to be powerful yourself, your good name, everything yes. into what you say. And, right, and and you would like you would like people. We all want to be liked. So when people go to battle about ideas, yeah. the real issue is ego. It's humans. Sure. It's not the scientific method. Yeah. Which the scientific method should most certainly be applied to psychedelics. It yeah. should most certainly be applied to every aspect of the yeah. known world. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, if that was the case, then more people would probably do psychedelics and we'd have less of an issue in the first place. I would rather, I would rather, I would rather think so. So um, you're, you're not an anti-science guy. You're just an anti-asshole guy. I, I, that, thank you. That's yeah. a really good way to put it. <laughs> I, I think – but there's a, a label that people like to throw on you, that you're anti-scientific. I and I think that's is, yeah. one of the ways that this TED thing built momentum. Yeah. And when – they, they do like to throw that label. As a matter of yeah. fact – Pseudoscience. As a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons amongst many why I've started to write fiction as well as nonfiction. Because if I explore extraordinary ideas in the realm of fiction, I'm not actually there making a claim that this is fact. Right. Nevertheless, the ideas are there to be explored in what, in what I've written. So it becomes, it becomes possible to enter into an inquiry into the nature of reality without having to create this huge superstructure of defense uh, against attacks by, by scientists, and I think it's a very useful way um, forward as far as, as far as I'm concerned because I did find that writing, um, writing nonfiction uh, more and more because I've become this target figure for scientists required me to bulletproof my arguments in ways that make them, frankly, a bit boring to read, you know, and, and I'm, I, I quite like the liberation of not having to do that. Yeah, I agree. I think your your ideas are always very novel, and you're a very interesting dude. But I think, in a lot of ways, you're sort of a bard. You know, you you're a great storyteller, and you're an exciter of the imagination and an inspirer of questions. Thank you. I feel that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what you do best, man. That book, Fingerprints of the Gods, got me looking at so many different aspects of our culture, and then yeah. questioning. How we got to this point in the first place, how it is that I get up in the morning, I get in my car, and I drive to work. As I was doing this after reading your book, I was thinking how strange it is yeah. that we live in this society where I was born in 1967. Um, yeah. I was, you know, we've, this, the cities have been here since I was a baby. Mm -hmm. Cars have been here. I've assumed that they've always been here. But then when you really stop and think about what a short period of time, yeah. 2,500 B.C. is, or what yeah. a short period of time even 30,000 B.C. is. Yeah. Yeah. That's nothing, man. In the, the history of the world, it's all a, a blink. Yes. It's a nothing. And yeah. we are in the middle of this. We wake up. Yeah. Being born is like waking up in the middle of a trip. Yes. Like, where are we? Where, where are we, we going? Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. the entire collective culture. And that was really probably the first time I ever really considered that was in reading your book. Yeah. And that made me so excited about history. Mm -hmm. I wasn't excited about history from school. I mean, I took the obligatory well, I'm, classes. I'm really but glad to have had that to have had that effect, and it makes me feel good. And as, as I'm getting on in life, one of the things that makes me feel good is is the feedback that I do get from people who've, who've read my books, and of which I've sweated blood in order to to write, and yeah. I've taken a lot of uh, attacks uh, from doing that. But I, I find this is the new thing for me. 
um, you know, Facebook. I mean, I, I'm a novice at Facebook, but I've started to interact really quite strongly on my Facebook pages. I enjoy the interaction that I get there. I enjoy uh, the new ideas that are put to me by, by others. And, and uh, yeah, frankly, it's really nice when, when some, some kid in his 20s write, writes to me and says he read Fingerprints of the Gods and it changed the way that he looks at the world. I've, that, that makes me feel I've done something, I've done something right anyway. In all the mistakes I may have made, I've done, I've done something right. You've done quite a bit right. But one of the things I think that you, you, you haven't done yet that you could totally be amazing at mm-hmm. is your own podcast. Mm-hmm. You're a wind-up guy. I could press you. I could <laughs> start you up. Tell, what, what, what's this ayahuasca stuff? Bang, press play, oh, and go, you, will, yeah. d- d- you, will, you will do the dance and, <laughs> and c- captivate with uh, amazing uh, descriptions yeah. and this very uh, in, entrancing and, uh, way of uh, communicating. Interesting thought. And I think that's the, the people like that are really important in culture and yeah. uh, most scientists are boring as fuck and even though they're doing amazing work and it's it, we wouldn't be communicating if it wasn't for some boring scientists sure. the reality is you're not going to excite people yeah. with that shitty personality of yours yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's That's not right. all of them. I mean, yeah. Feynman was legendarily charismatic. There's some great charismatic as was Carl Sagan. Yeah. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson is yeah. brilliant in that regard. Yeah. He's uh, he's a brilliant man, and he's brilliant. He's captivating and entertaining, yeah. and he, he draws you in. And they're very important as well. They're important as well. No. It's there's a lot of uh, really. st- well, I will look at the. Um Podcast, my friend. Now that I've now that I've kind of initiated myself into the internet world and got talking to people on Facebook and so on, and my website, you know, all of these things are are way. And the one thing I haven't done, I do have a YouTube channel, but what I don't have is a is 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 a is a podcast, and it might be something I massively important. It's the best way to communicate with people because even in writing, sometimes things are lost in tone in tone in the the way you could be sarcastic and just joking around. You actually have to write it. Just kidding, you know. You you have to. actually quantify it whereas yeah. people know in the inflection of your voice the look on your face mm. that's why we like to do this use even though most of the people listen to this podcast mm-hmm. we like to have an itunes version so you yeah. can see sometimes sure. we're, we're making silly faces we're yeah. joking around yeah. Yeah. yeah um i think for you it would be an excellent way to explore new ideas uh, the things that yeah. come to you and also respond to people yes. online yeah instead of like sitting there and writing everything out mm-hmm. pick a few emails every yeah. week and respond yeah. to them very good and, thought it's great. Uh, I will. I will take your advice. It's on, perfect for you. What was Ru- the argument against Rupert Sheldrake? From what I read online, was a bit stronger than the argument for you. No, I don't think so. No? Again, they attributed statements to him that he didn't make. So it was more the same type it was of the thing. Same type of thing. He. he what is, was his his uh, controversy? Well, he's saying that that scientist, science is locked in what we call a materialist reference frame, which is that it seeks to reduce everything to matter. Mm-hmm. And that there cannot be, and so therefore, the idea of telepathy, for example, is is an impossible idea as far as mainstream science is concerned. Because if your consciousness is simply something that's generated by your brain, why? How can you then pick up the thoughts of somebody else, you know, across a continent or or on the other side of the world? How is that? How is that possible? Um, and and uh, so he he was he is questioning the materialist reference frame of mainstream science, and since the most vocal advocates of mainstream science are materialists who do they do believe that consciousness is an accidental epiphenomenon of brain activity that there is nothing there is nothing else to it than that he got under a lot of skins well there's also the ones that don't believe that and haven't clearly defined what consciousness is but say if psychic um, abilities do exist show them yeah 
exhibit yeah. them. Yeah, well, that's we, precisely what Rupert has done. Over, has over, he? Yes. But what has he done absolutely, clearly absolutely. that shows, um, in your opinion? Well, um, for for example, um, documenting the sense of being stared at that people yes. people know when they're being stared right. at, and he's done experiments which document this and prove it at a level of statistical significance. A couple percent, right? Yeah, a couple yeah. of percent. Um, why does your dog know when you're coming home? Has that been disproven ever? No. No. Even though the owner of the dog varies the route, comes home by a different route in a different way um, every day. This might day. be your wife calling. Yeah, that's, prob- that's probably Santa. Hello? Oh, it's your neighbor. Oh, yeah, she's here. Okay. We'll have someone come out and get her right now. Thank you very much. All right, Jamie, just go out and tell her we'll, we'll wrap this up. Yeah. That's our neighbor. Yeah. She yeah. must have been knocking on the door. Well, this is this is the great thing about uh, a, live, uh, a live discussion. Yeah, know? it's when, beautiful. When, so, you, when my, yeah, when my wonderful no Santa turns up at the door and, and can't <laughs> get in, she's, she's got a telephone. Well, it's, it's cool because people know that it's not some etiquette. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's not edited and polished. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a real conversation yeah. in that it's way. A, it's a real You know, like we couldn't have this conversation afterwards and you say, oh, you know, the thing about science, maybe I, I said something. Could we, yeah. could we cut that out? Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah. It's raw. It's real. And uh, and 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 it and it works. Um, can I can I say a couple of things which yeah. I would like people to hear? Sure. One is um, I this this is an odd thing to ask because I've been very I've been very successful as a nonfiction author, but but I am hoping that people will pay attention to my fiction, right? And that people will listen to my fiction. It's very very difficult for me to be published as a novelist. The mm-hmm. publishing industry want me to stay in my box as a successful nonfiction author. And they don't want me to explore the fictional side of things. So I've managed to get a British publisher for my novel, which we talked about earlier, War God, about mm-hmm. the Spanish conquest of Mexico. But so far, I don't have an American publisher. And I have been helped a lot by my Facebook community, many of whom are Americans, who have gone to Amazon UK and bought the British edition of my book, um, from America, and it will be delivered to them here in America uh, in a few days because the book is published on the 30th of May. Um, and if anybody's interested in that story, I would appreciate if they'd make the effort to go to Amazon UK and pick up the book because what that does then is it gives the book the possibility of some success in Britain. And if it succeeds in Britain, then it will be picked up by an American publisher. So well. it's only the resistance is just that it's nonfiction? Yeah. That's right. Publishing, wow. publishing industry is an industry that thinks in terms of brands, and I am branded as a nonfiction author. This is your second nonfiction it's my second, book. Did it's your my second, second? Did your first one sell sell well? My first novel vanished without a trace because it had that was called Entangled uh-huh. uh, because it had absolutely no support from from the publishers at all. It sold a few thousand copies, but really it was was completely ignored. And uh, the same thing is going to happen with uh, with War God as well. Um, and unless if people find and what I've done is I've put free chapters, free to read chapters online on my website. And, and that can, is GrahamHancock.com? And that's www.GrahamHancock.com. We gotta fix your Twitter, man. This double underscore is confusing. Well, a lot I know of it is, but I can't. I couldn't get that name. I couldn't yeah. get at Graham Hancock. I got at Graham. Uh, who is Graham Hancock. Hancock? Who's the at Graham Hancock? Well, there's another guy with my name, and his name is Graham Hancock. Yeah, his name is Graham mm. Hancock. He got it first, so nothing can be nothing. Just that be double underscore. Yeah. Couldn't you just do something else, like Graham Hancock in one word? No, that's what he's got. He's got it. Oh, 
Well, how about, uh, do you have a middle name? Graham Bruce Hancock. Graham B. Hancock? Yeah. How about that? No, that's stupid. Yeah. Forget it. Forget what I said. I know, Graham. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my, my, my mother, bless her, when she gave me my name, uh-huh. she had in my, so my initials are G.B. Hancock, okay? Right. When she gave me my name, she, she was thinking of, yeah, that, that, that's what I use on my email address. She was thinking Hey, of, you fucked up. Someone's going to hit you with email They now. hit me with emails anyway. It's okay. She was thinking in a rather grandiose way of George Bernard Shaw, you know, G.B. Uh-huh. G. Ah. Hancock. So she called me G.B. Hancock, not realizing that G.B.H. also stands for grievous bodily harm, you know. Oh, it does in Britain in British law? Yeah, that's a that's a particular that's a particular uh, crime. You know that you've committed an act of grieve of GBH against oh. somebody. So that's my that's that's my initials. I don't know what to um, what to do about my Twitter name. Maybe we we'll just have to keep it double we'll just double underscore. This is, so there's an underscore Graham since, underscore. Since this is live, well? can I can I introduce my Santa? Sure, if she wants. Santa, to be on. come here. Hi, Santa. Hi. What's come, up? Come, come. He's all so happy now that he quit quit weed. Look at him. Completely. <laughs> yes. Are you happier now that you quit weed? Absolutely. Wow. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. No, because, simply because he was abusing the substance. Right. You know. Yeah, I understand. And, yeah, it was the substance controlling him mm. or being in control of him as, as opposed to him yeah. being in control of the substance. So. Yeah, we went deep into it. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. stuff. Do you have this on um, Kindle? In, uh, uh, yes, but you have to buy it in England, and I think there's really? some things that make it difficult for Americans to buy the Kindle edition. They can only they can only buy the the hard the hardback edition. Oh, that's so stupid. But there's there's links on my website which go to the right place to buy it, and there's chapters to read so people can make. I'm not asking people to buy it blind. People can make up their own minds, read right. the chapters if they hate it. Don't buy it. Well, you know? Graham Hancock, one of our sponsors is Audible.com. Is audible.com. Yeah, do you, do you my, have now, an okay, audio? Now, the U.S. Of edition of my first novel, Entangled, is available on Audible. But right yeah. now, I, I do not have... Did you read it? Huh? No, I didn't. It, was read, read by, it? it was read by somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Do you like the person who read it? Was it yes, good? Nice That's got to be weird, nice reading your own, or hearing someone read your words. It's weird um, if they don't do it well, but in this case, it was done well. Wow. Yeah, you don't want to buy uh, Stephen King's when he reads them. That's the only if I really, give you I've advice. Not, I've not had that. Pleasure. I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Me too. Boy, Stephen he, King is brilliant. He's amazing. His and his book on writing is equally amazing. Fantastic Stephen King book. on writing. On writing. On so, writing. Yeah, if you are a writer, there's two books you need: The War of Art and Stephen King on writing. Those are the, the two. The other one is Steve, Stephen Stephen Pressfield's The War, yes. the war on Art. The war, yeah, the war and his new art, one, yeah. Turning Pro, which is equally yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Fantastic. But don't ever get an audio book that Stephen King reads because he's fucking boring as shit. Okay. He'll put you right to sleep. I mean, the guy's the greatest author ever, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but I agree. He's, he is, he is the best. He writes just a, just an amazing narrator, the amazing stories. He's got the gift, fantastic gift of writing a story. Yeah, I remember reading some of his stuff when I was a young teenager, like thinking, like, Jesus, I shouldn't even be reading this. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, the, the, his descriptions, like, the, they bordered on creepy, like, some of the sexual stuff. And yeah. He's, yeah. In a, he's just a beast. Yeah, yeah. But he's also... Um, being given a gift by the universe oh, to, yeah. to write amazing stories that make you want to keep turning the pages. And yeah. you're right, his book on writing, for anybody who aspires to become a writer, that is the first place you go, is yeah. read Stephen King on writing. Yeah, it's a brilliant book, and he's so forthcoming about all of his, his trials and struggles. And yeah. He's uh, amazing. And that's my favorite kind of movie is, or, or is his 
books like where it's just fantasy. Mm-hmm. I don't need things to be real in my no. fiction. No. You know, I I enjoy fiction, but I don't need to see like a really depressing movie where everybody's got cancer mm-hmm. and oh my god, so brilliantly acted. Yeah. Stop. No, Entertain me. Make show me an evil car that kills people. Yeah. You know? Exactly. <laughs> show me the dude next door neighbor's a werewolf. You exactly. know? I think that's the that's the writer's first task. The, yeah. the fiction writer's first task is to entertain. Did you you I mean you said witches in this. Did you throw some supernatural shit yeah, in this the, as well? The War God is is full of the supernatural. And 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 I was able to bounce off the facts because um, the Aztec society has been rightly described as the last magical civilization. They were they were involved in in magic and witchcraft in a huge in a huge way. And that, but they also persecuted witches, just as European society in the Middle Ages persecuted witches. So there's strong supernatural elements in this in this story. And I and and in a way, I think it's only possible to understand what happened between 1519 and 1521 when you take the beliefs. In the supernatural, into account. It sounds like they were. I mean, what your description of a nation of serial killers is yeah. apt. That's what I mean, the Aztecs were. That's what the Aztecs. Were. And and here's the thing, you see. I mean, my my two set central female characters meet in what's called a fattening pen. So this is what the Aztecs did. They they're human sacrificial victims. They would first of all they would fatten them up in um, prisons. Why would they fatten them? Because they wanted to present them to the god plump and oh. desirable. So they would fatten them for months on end. And can you imagine living, that's your situation, you've been put in the fattening pen, they're feeding you this high-calorie diet, and at a certain date you're going to be marched up the pyramid and have your heart cut out. That, that, takes, that takes some um, courage to resist. That Teotihuacan sacrifice of four days of 80,000 people, I told that to my friend Steve Rinella, and he didn't even believe me. Yeah, Tenochtitlan, by the way. Tenochtitlan. How do you say it? Tenochtitlan. That was the ancient name of Mexico City. It used to be an island in the middle of a lake, approached by causeways. And the temple was called Teotihuacan? Well, no, that's actually 35 miles north of Mexico City. That's a place, that's the the Pyramid of the Sun, the Pyramid of the Moon, and the Pyramid of Quetzalcoatl, which the Aztecs revered as the place where men became gods. That is what, but they didn't know who made Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan was already remotely ancient when the Aztecs came into the Valley of Mexico and encountered it. So the Pyramid of the Sun, the completion of that was when they killed 80,000 people? No. No. That was the Pyramid of the War God. Oh, the Pyramid of the War God. Which is why my novel is called War God. And that that stood in the heart of what is now Mexico City. And when the Spanish took that city, the very first thing they did was to take that pyramid apart stone by stone. Did you see what happened in Belize recently? Yeah, so so an ancient Mayan pyramid is used as a construction material by some asshole yeah. firm who who used diggers to just break down the body of the pyramid and use it to make roads. Yeah. How crazy is kind that? Kind of sums up everything that's wrong with our culture. <sighs> that's not our culture. Well, that's the that's the I, place where John McAfee was living. I you know that to, whole yeah, yeah, craziness. Absolutely, I refer to global culture, global culture, Humanity. production and consumption. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it was astounding that someone would yeah. be willing to do that. You're yeah. destroying an archaeological site for just for its limestone. Yeah, like yeah. whoa, like that is some short-sighted assholes. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. incredible. But but that, but that, but doesn't that short-sightedness, that the pursuit of short-term goals, which might be immediately profitable, even though long-term massively damaging, doesn't that actually completely sum up everything that's wrong with global culture today? I mean, if you wanted to take one act which kind of expresses it, that would be that would be it. But you know, we it's, don't think long term. We don't think in terms of the sacred. We don't the Amazon jungle. Nobody considers, you know, when that when the, when it's being 
exploited as an economic resource, right. what that means for our planet in the ro in the long run. If all of those trees come down, short term, some money might be made out of it. Long term, we're losing the lungs of our planet. Well, the the pattern is the the real issue with human beings is our ability to do things in large numbers that would be horrific if we did singularly. Yes. You know, the, the fusion of responsibility that comes from acting as a corporation or acting as an army or acting where horrific things can be justified because you're only a part of one huge group of people yep. that are doing these things. There's been some, uh, we talked about science, there's been some interesting science done on exactly that point, which is that it, they set it up with actors. You put a situation where somebody is on the street and they're in jeopardy, a woman is perhaps being attacked. If there are two or three people walking on the street, they will almost always intervene to prevent the attack. Yeah. But if there's a thousand people walking on the street, nobody intervenes. Yeah, well, I think that happens most of the time. It can happen, but I yeah. think a lot of people would intervene. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's, a, that's one of those weird things that is like a psychological principle that gets brought up mm -hmm. as a sort of as a matter of fact. Mm. I don't necessarily think it's a matter of fact because if I saw someone raping someone, I'd kick their ass. But you might be I would the, try at least. You might be the the extraordinary exception. Eh, I don't think so. No? I think there's a lot of people who jump in. But oh. you hear stories like that all the time where people yeah. save someone from this and yeah. did something you there. Do. I think it's more likely that cowards would walk away if there's a thousand people, mm -hmm. but there's still out of a thousand there's people. still somebody with guts who's going to yeah, do something about somebody it. Somebody who realizes we're all in I this hope, together and I you hope, wouldn't want to I hope it to you're be. right. I, I share your faith in the human race. I think we have amazing potential, amazing capacity to love, amazing capacity to give, amazing generosity and decency. That's what I encounter day to day. Yeah, for the most part, right? Yeah. Mostly people are awesome. Yeah. It's just a few of these Montezuma motherfuckers yeah. running around killing everybody. Yeah. And yeah. throughout history, there's been, you know, giant groups of people led by serial killers. Yeah, And that's yeah, a big, part of, the big ones, part of reality. They're the ones who go for that job. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, this podcast called Hardcore History that I talk about all the time. But um, I've been uh, listening to it. Uh, lately, it's been... Uh, uh, talk about uh, the Nazis and World War Two, and but it's when you when you go back and pay attention to some of the things that happened in history, and you see the amazing level of ruthlessness mm. that people exhibited uh, against their enemies, mm. just throughout the history of humans. There's been groups that flared up, whether it's the Mongols or the Nazis or you know the Romans or the, there's been so many groups of ruthless people. Still happening now, Joe. Yeah. I mean, you know, when when a drone flies over a village in Afghanistan or Pakistan and and 120 people get slaughtered. Yeah. It's a bit remote, it's a bit distant. We're not getting our hands dirty, but people are still being killed. Well, it's crazy. Children Be are being deprived of their parents, you the know. The children are dying, children, children are getting dying. maimed. And the numbers are so skewed in in the favor of uh, people who were casualties that were innocent. Mm. There's way more people that are innocent that are getting killed by these drones. Of course, yeah. Than because, and then they say, well, that's because these terrorists, they do things in highly populated areas. Well, well, then you can't do that. You can't just say we're going to kill. That's, that is one of the most un-American things you could ever do. It's a terrible un-American thing. The idea that you could kill all these oppressed innocent people just yeah. to get this one bad guy. Yeah, yeah. It's patently obviously wrong. And yet at the level of government, nobody seems to have got it yet how wrong it is. It's diffusion of responsibility <coughs> in a digital technological yeah. form, yeah. a warfare form.
Yeah. Completely. I mean, no one's even there. I mean, this is what we can do. Instead of doing some horrific war crimes, we send soldiers in there to slaughter all these innocents to get these bad people. Yeah. Instead of doing that, which is totally unacceptable, we'll just do it this way, where you're not even really there. Yeah, like, like some guy is sitting in a control tower yeah. playing a computer game, really. Well, how about the fact they're going to give them medals? That was one I of the big that. things. They're, yeah. they're going to give drone pilots medals, and yeah. people are like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, this is getting bananas. No act of courage is involved. Well, apparently there's been a new scandal where four Americans were killed in a recent drone, stri- drone strike, mm-hmm. and now uh, Obama is uh, trying to restrict the, the use of drones and mm-hmm. trying to say that they can't be used on Americans. Mm-hmm. But whatever. We live in strange times. We live in strange times. Is it because our humanity has not yet caught up to our technological capabilities that we are we are evolved sure. techno- technologically so much in the, the past several hundred years? We've like literally changed the world mm-hmm. entirely, mm-hmm. but yet the tissue, the DNA, the the, 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 the echoes of the past that lie in our, our, our language and in our cultures is really not caught up by any stretch of the imagination. I think that's a good point. I, th- I think that's I think that's a good point. We've we've got these um, we've got these incredible toys, but we haven't learned to play with them responsibly yet. Yeah, uh, we've got this barbaric mindset that's still in place to to run shit. If you yeah. want to run shit, you got to be a fucking savage. The mindset hasn't changed that much no. in the last thousand or five hundred years. But yet we're hopeful. But we're hopeful, and I and I and I remain hopeful. I th- I think it's a wonderful thing to be human it's a great gift to be born in a human body we have this you know that's part of it actually is the what it, the human predicament is the predicament of making choices between alternatives between good and evil between dark and light and the wor- our world we live in today is filled with darkness and with light but the one thing that all of us can do as individuals is we can make the right choice rather than the, the wrong choice. We don't have to add to the misery in the world, not even one tiny fraction. we always got the, the choices we make, those are our responsibility alone. And no, we cannot devolve those on others. We can't say it's the government's fault. The choices we make are our choices. And that is the message of ayahuasca, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's the message of ayahuasca. That's why everybody needs it. Yeah, yeah, because your choices, your choices are yours and your choices will define you. Isn't it funny that that would be one of the single most powerful changing elements in this in this culture if all of a sudden ayahuasca centers started opening them up and we we started exploring it scientifically, we started to f- figure out what those, the contents are. As long are. as those centers were run by good-hearted people, by good-hearted who, people who had the capacity to love and wanted the betterment of mankind, rather than who were seeking personal gain or, per, or personal power. The it. evil ones in the the Peru and where have you? Are, are they taking it as well? Yeah. So yeah. they're taking it and doing evil things. Yeah. Once they take it, I'm afraid so. Yeah. Wow. So you do you think that they're just psychopaths that yes. got a hold of some ayahuasca and that finally, you can't fix final, that final, kind of crazy? Finally, finally, yes. If you if if you come to this medicine with wicked intent, then bad things can happen. So you really believe in the idea of entities being evil. You believe in the, the, the communication of evil entities. I think, it's a, I think it's a very interesting possibility, which mm-hmm. explains a lot in human history. Demons. Um, yeah, demons. I think, it's, uh, I think that's a simple shorthand for it, just as, just as there are also angels. I think that the reality is much more complicated than we imagine. 
that uh, that there are huge unseen realms which impact upon us in in important ways and uh, we are interacting with them whether we like it or not and in certain states of consciousness that interaction can become conscious and we can and we can gain access to those to those realms and furthermore um, I would say I I believe ultimately in the unity of all things but right now in this particular learning experience that we're undergoing in a human incarnation I think it's really useful that those choices exist what after all if everything was all good and and rosy and perfect and that were, were not possible to do wrong what could we learn from this experience of life if we don't have the opportunity to make mistakes if we don't if we are not faced with fundamental choices, what, what would we benefit from in living this, this life in a human body? Well, you know, that's one of the main arguments for computer simulation theory. Excellent argument, yeah. It's one of the main arguments is that we've got ourselves to a point where life is fucking boring because we've solved all the problems, we've eliminated all the stress and conflict. Uh, that's patently each untrue. Minds, we haven't solved all the problems. But that this is a computer simulation. Okay. That the life we are living, that we're in the roaring 20s of the digital era. We're in the simulation. Yeah. Where it's indiscernible. Yeah, well, that, it's quite possible to imagine virtual reality, even in our technology today, getting to the point where you, you wouldn't know that it was virtual, where you're totally immersed in that reality. And for all we know, Joe, that's exactly what you and I are. You well, that's we're, that's we're, the we're, argument, we're, yeah. We're, uh, and at the end of our lifespan, our 70 or 80 years or however many years we get, you know, random element in that, we're going to step out and find ourselves in a room and where, we've been, where we've been playing this game all along. And then we'll be scored on what we did, you know. <laughs> and and, 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 and did, we, did we actually fulfill the objectives that we set out at the beginning of the game with? There you get, there you get actually with that idea of a computer simulation, you actually get to the, you find yourself coming full circle and meeting very ancient spiritual ideas like that thing that I called the weighing of the, of the soul yeah. in the ancient Egyptian system. That's where, that's where you get scored on how you performed in the computer game. And how you, maybe how you performed was not you know, how much money you made or how much power you had. Maybe it was really how much love you gave. That was the, that was the thing you most needed to do. Is it possible that the, 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 the sort of the fractal nature of reality um, manifests itself in the idea of these demons being that in that you you must reinforce good and you must punish bad and the only way these dumb people ever really completely understand it is if they feel a physical manifestation of the evil that they've caused and that's what a demon is so it's a, just sort of a guide rail that you bump into something that's supposed to steer you towards the positive the very reason why you so. evolve after like a psychedelic trip seeing the bad that you're doing yeah. seeing seeing the evil as manifested as an actual being yeah, yeah. where it's most terrifying your common enemies that you have in yeah. real life whether it's predators or enemies they're a physical manifestation absolutely so we don't you know we don't know the answer to these right. questions these are these we're touching here upon a great mystery uh, people all over the world have these experiences and report remarkably similar encounters with entities, either mm -hmm. demonic or angelic. And this has been going on throughout human culture. Right. And it's a feature of the psychedelic experience as well. And we don't know what those things are. This is, this is just not clear. Do they have an independent existence from us or are they part of a teaching program that we need to encounter, as you're suggesting just now? I think they're very interesting questions to examine, but I don't know the answer to them. I've always had an issue with the, the, the possibility of archetypes, too, that people have already established. 
that archetypes that people already have in their head so that they, you know, when, when the, you have an abduction experience, what you think is an abduction experience, you sort of fill in the blanks with whatever these entities are. Well, all, the, all of a sudden they become these gray guys with big black eyes because that's the cultural archetype that mm-hmm. we sort of subscribe to. Mm-hmm. And in all these stories... These Why do we find them painted on cave walls 25,000 years ago then? It's a good question. It's a yeah, good question. That's the, that's the, the Which ones do we find? Well, the, the, particularly on the walls of, uh, in fact, on a little alcove and a ceiling inside Peshmerl cave in France, there's a fantastically recognizable depiction of what we would call a grey today. Can you pull that up? How how do you spell it? I call him the... the, the wounded man sometimes. He's, he's Peshmerl, P-E-C-H-M-E-R-L-E, uh-huh. Peshmerl. And he is pierced through the body with a number of spears, and he has this kind of high-domed forehead and narrow pointed chin and just a hint of large, dark eyes. Do you think that these things are actually physically visiting, or do you think that there's a chemical doorway that's uh, open through psychedelics or through some technology, and that that's how they're appearing? I think it's a chemical doorway i think that we have a i think we have a hidden doorway inside our minds through which we can project our consciousness into other levels of reality i can't prove that but that's what i i think may be may be going on that's what it feels to you when you experience these that's what it feels to me like that i'm entering a, a seamlessly convincing parallel world and again i want to stress the point that because you've had this experience these these true experiences if they're just a hallucination a byproduct of the mind that is impossible to prove Mm -hmm. you're still having the exact same experience yeah you're still having the exact same experience and there you come back to the point we made earlier that what you then learn from that experience and if you grow in some way through that experience it doesn't really matter whether it's freestanding reality or, or whether it's uh, you know something you projected and as we become more interconnected with our ability to communicate and our our, our our idea that the human race really is one gigantic super organism yeah as we accept that idea more and more it, it opens up a lot of other possibilities it opens up a lot of pos- possibilities for just our overall view of things yeah yeah, sure. This is uh, this is the the new um, Copernican revolution that we're poised on the edge of. You know, at one time, uh, it was considered that the uh, that that the sun went around the Earth, and that all the stars revolved around the Earth, and the Earth was fixed and still in the center. And then some people started having experiences, or if you like, finding data which contradicted that, and eventually a whole worldview was was thrown away and i think we're you know at the edge of moving into a new into, into a whole new revolution about the nature of reality that it is just much more complicated than we've imagined and uh, yeah that's a that's a kind of sketch of the peshmel figure that's not the original cave painting and i'm afraid the only ufos that are actually present are the ones above the individual's head the other two are not there in the painting so let's go see if you can find the original one jamie because that one looks like shit that looks like an animal too they, you know, who knows what they, they were really terrible at drawing, too. Oh, no, it they were amazing like, at drawing. Some of them were. Some of the cave paintings are absolutely stunning. Nah, I wouldn't pay for them. I mean, oh, I would if I knew they were really old. You haven't seen But if, like, some new dude just came along and that was his version of a buffalo, I'd be like, bitch. Yeah. That doesn't look like <laughs> you haven't seen what is painted inside <laughs> Chauvet Cave in France. Well, I've watched that documentary, yeah. uh, the Werner Herzog okay, documentary. So yeah, no, it's it. amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm joking around, I know. obviously. As you do. Um, as you but. Do. Still, there's, you know, I'd rather buy an Alex Gray painting 
think his shit is cooler. Yeah, Ali you know, I like great. some Frank Frazetta. You know, that's art to me. Okay. There's no Frank Frazetta on cave walls, right? Okay. They didn't really. <laughs> You're like, okay. Yeah, you know, okay. You know, I mean, the caves. This, this is one of the great experiences we can have as human beings: is to yeah. go into those painted caves and go in in silence and in darkness and just get a sense of the atmosphere. They're transformative spaces. They they knew something about set and setting in those times. And of course, I'm, I'm convinced they were using psychedelics. And that was, uh, the, the caves in France were... Caves in France, caves in Spain, yeah. How, what are the oldest ones? The, the, cave the of very oldest is Fumani Cave in Italy, which is 35,000 years old. Uh, Chauvet Cave, about 33, 32,000 years old. Wow. Uh, they're, they, they're, they're, they're pretty, pretty fucking ancient. So do you think that those were people that were living in those caves? That no, were making that lived, artwork? People never lived in those caves. Never lived in them? No, no, they didn't. They used them as sacred spaces. They visited them in small numbers, often separated. There might be an interval of 2,000 years between when one group went in and when another group went in. So our idea of cave art, as the, the, the layperson's idea, is these cavemen were inside this cave, and then at nighttime they would light fires and draw cave art. That's not what was going That's on. That's not what happened. They, what? Never, they never lived in those spaces. They lived outside. They lived in, you know, in portable structures like teepees. Um, they were they were hunter gatherers, and uh, they used the caves as, as sacred spaces. And they communicated their most profound ideas about the spirit. So they were a lot more sophisticated than we like to believe. They were just as sophisticated as we are. Was there ever a time b before that that we know of where they weren't? Where like Neanderthals supposedly are being uh they 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 did some cave art as well correct yeah this is the new discovery that some of the very oldest cave art was almost certainly done by neanderthals so the neanderthal image is due for a complete uh, rehabilitation uh very 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 soon uh the, the neanderthals the image that we have of neanderthals is is completely wrong but there's a thing i call six million years of boredom which is you know from the last common ancestor with the chimpanzee through until well after the emergence of anatomically modern humans, our ancestors were very dull, judging by what they left behind, judging by what they produced. They, they were not thinking laterally, they were not creating, they, they, were not, uh, they did not have spiritual concepts or ideas. And it's rather like a light is switched on in the human brain all around the world, somewhere after 100,000 years ago, um, really 40,000 years ago, that we get this amazing explosion of symbolic art and suddenly you recognize that the creatures are just like us and that we are we are dealing with um with people we could communicate with on a on a, on a symbolic level so something happened to our ancestors and i and i made this ca case extensively in my book supernatural that what happened to our ancestors was encounters with psychedelics that's what took us out of the dull and boring zone and put us into the realm of imagination and creativity and spirit. Well, it's a fascinating idea, and it's a weird one to dismiss because we know that the impact of psychedelics on the mind is so astonishing. It's yeah. very poo-pooed and marginalized because it's thought to be frivolous and silly, but that's only by people who haven't done it. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. one of the weirdest things where yeah. it's it's persecuted by people who really need it more than yes. anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, for for those who've never had a psychedelic experience to put down others who have had it and to tell them that that experience is, is wrong. I mean, that's like a celibate, you know, telling somebody not to have sex. They, yeah. they, the, the celibate has no experience of the thing that they're talking about. Yeah. How dare they make judgments about that? 
Yeah, it's a good point. It's, a w- it's strange. But I think that um, people like you that are brave enough to speak out about this and, in fact, even write books about it, mm-hmm. you, that's that's the ripples that sends out this information, and the universe picks it up. Yeah. And the Internet grabs it and duplicates it and throws it up on Twitter, and then, boom, we're off to the races. And yeah. new ideas are introduced into the minds of the young people, yeah. who I think that's what, what gives me hope. That's what gives me hope, too. Young there's people. A, there's a fantastic growing community of alert, intelligent, awake, aware young people out there. That grew up with the Internet. That grew up with the Internet and and that uh, are not going to put up with uh, all that shit any longer that comes down from a hierarchical, controlling, dominator culture. Boom. Graham Hancock just dropped some science. <laughs> that was a beautiful conversation, man. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. we got to do this more often. I agree. When are you back in uh, America again? Oh, late October. So if people want to buy War God, they can go to Amazon.co.uk. Well, what they, right? the easiest way to do it is to go to my website. Okay, GrahamHancock.com. GrahamHancock.com. Okay, you already have you have the Canadian and, have, and the UK link because up. Because that's the two places so it's on sale, Amazon Canada or Amazon UK, and we, they can buy it there. And hopefully if all our friends at Audible are listening, hook it up, bitch. Get somebody to read it. Come on. I'll, I'll, I'd love to have that in my car when I'm driving around. Um, but I will, I'll pick it up as well. Support. Fresh. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, and is that the original K-Word? Yes, it is. There oh, it is. Wow. So you can see that high-domed forehead up there. Could yeah. just be shitty art. Forehead. That art there sucks. You can, see the, you can see the dark eyes. Well, what you the could, fuck is but it? You know what? You know? It's what's, also that, what's that up in the sky up above it? I mean, what is Let me that? tell you something. I got a three-year-old, and she draws people. They look exactly like that. <laughs> 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 She's not trying to depict aliens. She's just shitty at drawing. Well, this is, you know, it's the problem with this is this is too un- it's too ambiguous. It's yeah. like, that's not good art. I mean, so I don't know what that is. Is that a spider? Could be a spider. Could no, be a no, crab. No. It's a man with it's a it's a human body. The thing in the with, upper left. I with, mean, with spears pierced through his body. Okay, what about that thing in the upper left? What the hell is that? That thing there. Uh, nobody fucking, knows. Nobody knows it's what it is. Fucking shitty spider. Nobody knows what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that guy sucked. I hope that guy was way better at killing buffalo because no, his drawings are dog shit. I think we need to send you into the painted cave. <laughs> I think no, you need I'm to... joking around completely. I mean, this I'm not that impressed man. with. I would like yeah. to look at it. I think it's fascinating because well, it's so old. But... Actually, as a work of art, it's not impressive. But as a, as a subject about. matter, what you know, what is being depicted there is rather is rather interesting. I I, I, so, I sort of disagree, and this is why I disagree because the the thing in the upper left that might be a spider shows me a really rudimentary level of replicating what they're trying to draw. Uh, that looks like shit, and so this looks like shit too. I don't know what it is. It might be uh, a bug. It might be uh, an animal. It's like the guy sucks at drawing. He's not that good. So to try to attribute anything to it, I, I think it'll be a little disingenuous. So those uh, archaeologists that you know that are trying to figure what this thing out is, you're just guessing, man. Same sort of image is found um, all over the world. It is that so the image of the gray head, right? And, o- and also eyes. the image of the of the therianthrope, which is the creature that's part human and part animal in form. That is found that is found all all around the world. Often I've seen virtually identical images in the painted caves in France and in canyons in Utah, for example. And you feel that that is c- directly related to psychedelic Absolutely. use, the spirit and, and, world. And and I think this is related to psychedelics as well. I think that's a painting of a vision, um, and the vision might have been you know not very clear, but. But that's what that's what's being painted. I think somebody gave a three-year-old a colored rock, and that's what they <laughs> drew. That's what it looks like what my three-year-old draws. I'm telling you, man. Um, 
the the idea of the the morphing of call the... up, if you if you look if you look at Google <laughs> call up call up Chauvet Chauvet Cave images from Chauvet Cave I want Joe to see some beautiful images oh no I will I I will be very impressed I'm just joking around I'm being completely joking uh, and silly but you're but right that image that image is rudimentary what are the best images the best images depictions of aliens to you. That you, that you well, feel. first of all, uh, first of all, let me let me make it clear. I don't think that the that we're dealing with aliens, right. quote unquote. Well, I mean that gray. I'm sorry, that I, gray I, archetype. I think we're that... I think we're dealing with a mystery. I think we're dealing with a phenomenon, and I think we as a culture, or certain members of our culture, are jumping to the conclusion that creatures a bit like us, perhaps looking slightly different, in very high tech craft are crossing interstellar space. There's a beautiful picture from Chauvet. It's not bad. Are crossing interstellar space and are coming here in technology. But I I personally think, again, I can't prove it, but I think it's more likely we're dealing with interdimensional contacts, that these these entities are are not high-tech aliens from a planet a bit like ours, but they're coming to us from literally the other side of reality. Well, my unfortunate labeling aside, um, calling them aliens, I meant that archetype, that big, that you say repeats itself over and over again. South Africa, for example, in the Drakensberg Mountains, images just like that. that What's the best example we can pull up right now so we just... I don't think you'd be able to pull this up. No, they Um, don't have those images online? No, you might might find it. Everything is on the internet. I'm not sure. How Um, could they not have that online? I have it in my in my book, Supernatural. But what is the best one that's online, in your opinion? I honestly couldn't tell you. Okay. I just wanted to get some. I've seen some really fascinating ones. Um, uh, One crazy shaman. The, where it's uh, he's it's a very strange looking creature. He looks like yeah. it could be maybe from Shaman Shaman Cave in uh, Texas, possibly. Yeah. Is that what it is? Maybe. And maybe. those are is those Native American depictions? Yeah, is that yeah, what that is? yeah, yeah. But then you find similar things from from Tassili in in Algeria. You know these kind of glowing figures that that seem to it's very easy to construe them as as alien visitors from from other planets. Why do so many drugs like whether it's ayahuasca or there's other ones that have archetypes that are built in like snakes and you know mm-hmm. jaguars. What do you what do you think that is? Do you think that's the experiences of the people that have taken it before you? Well, first of all, I don't think it's that we don't know what an archetype is. Right. You know, there's this idea that the human brain has all these patterns and shapes just built into it archetypally, but I think just as easy just as possible is that there are other levels of reality in which entities are able to look like that. Mm-hmm. Shape-shifting entities that can take on many different forms. The, the, the experience is very universal. For example, everyone who drinks ayahuasca, um, pretty much everyone, if they persist with it, will encounter serpents. And those serpents aren't like your everyday serpent. You know, they're 500 feet long with, you know, mouths the size of cars oh. and, and um, richly colored and, uh, colored and patterned and, and intelligent. You know, now why is it that somebody who drinks ayahuasca in Tokyo and somebody who drinks it in New York and somebody who drinks it in the Amazon, that they all encounter these serpent, intelligent serpent entities? Why do you think it is? Well, I think that there's something out there which chooses to manifest in that form. And I think that it's being witnessed just as, just as if um, three different explorers went into the jungle and met the same previously uncontact, con- uncontacted tribe and came back and drew us images. And I think that there is some reality to it. But I can't prove that. Right. I just think that that's what's, that's what's going on. And I've had enough encounters. So like Rick Strassman's work with DMT, which I know that you're familiar with because you presented the DMT, the Spirit Molecule documentary, yeah. you know, that, that a number of his volunteers encounter entities 
who say to them, we're so glad you've discovered this technology. Now we can communicate with you more often. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I always wonder about those trips, whether or not that's just your imagination on hyperdrive, creating these and right and proper, creatures. right and proper that you should wonder about yeah. it. Yeah, but, uh, but there's also the possibility that no, it's a, you're yeah. communicating with something. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. either way, again, like we said, same experience. Yeah, right? yeah. You're a bad motherfucker, Graham Hancock. <laughs> Thank you. You really are. I'm, I'm glad. I we're take friends. that as a compliment. You should, sir. <laughs> you should. I'm glad we're friends. I really, really enjoy our talks. It's one of my favorite podcasts ever. So thank, thank you. Thank very you, much. Joe. It's a real pleasure to sit down with you. So, War God, people can get it. Go to GrahamHancock.com and uh, on Twitter, he's Graham double underscore Hancock. Thank you, and thank you to uh, everybody that tuned into the podcast. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Hover. Please go to Hover.com forward slash Rogan. Get yourself 10% off. Thank you to Stamps.com. Use the Click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner and use the code word J-R-E. And thank you also to Onnit.com. Go to O-N-N-I-T. Use the code name Rogan and save yourself 10% off any and all supplements. We will be back on Monday with uh, Dave Asprey. Uh, a lot of people really enjoyed his first talk, and he's got a lot of new information. I know a lot of folks have questions about the whole Bulletproof Exec. Go to BulletproofExec.com if you want to prepare for this and find out what the fuck Dave Asprey is all about. But he's a brilliant guy, and we look forward to talking to him on Monday. All right. Thank you, everybody. Much love. Big kiss. Mwah.